0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering auto insurance policies designed to help for when the worst happens. You can ask an independent agent about Safety Insurance. Safety Insurance. will help you manage life's storms.
1: Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Super Tuesdays here. And while our own Senator Elizabeth Warren is fighting hard to carry on, here in the Bay State she's facing stiff competition from her colleague in the north, Bernie Sanders. Later, we'll hear from Senator Warren herself about why the same voters who sent her to the Senate twice should now send her to the White House. Then we'll talk to a surrogate for Sanders who says that if base Staters want a progressive in the Oval Office, the only choice is Bernie. And throughout the day, we'll, of course, be taking your calls.
2: Today, most of us will exercise our right to vote. But for millions of Americans, voting isn't as simple as going down to your local library or school. From voting roll purchase to reduced ballot access, even in Massachusetts, voters face hurdles to participating in our democracy. We we'll talked to Carol Rose of the ACLU about 25 active cases. The ACLU is litigating to help restore voting. Rights. That's next on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Mm-hmm. Me, mm-hmm. I'm Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. It's Tuesday, and we're broadcasting as we do every Tuesday from the WGBH studio. Boston Public Library. It's a big day today, I am pretty excited myself.
1: It's the equivalent of the Super Bowl for the civic-minded, political junkies, political operatives, and the candidates themselves. We're bringing you what we hope will be a Super Tuesday Spectacular. We'll be hearing from virtually all the campaigns, some candidates themselves, some surrogates, making their last 2020 primary pitch to you. We're also, throughout the whole show today, in between these interviews, taking your calls, conducting, I guess, our informal exit poll if you're a Massachusetts voter. Who did you vote for and why? The number 877 301 Is your favorite candidate even still in the race, or did she or he drop out a while ago? Are you voting for someone who you think will be the best president, or are you voting for the person who you think will beat Donald uh, Trump. And by the way, on the Republican side, there is a primary uh, in this state between our former governor, Bill Weld, and the president of the United States. We'd love to hear from uh, you, too. You know, the most interesting thing I've read this morning is um, some new polling results from around the country. And it is clear that uh, Biden got a huge bounce out of South Carolina and what happened after South Carolina. He, in California, for example, where it wasn't even clear two days ago... If anybody other than Bernie Sanders would get the required 15% to get any delegates, it is now in the most recent poll. 32 Sanders, 27 Biden. Incredibly, a week ago in Virginia, uh, Sanders was winning, beating Biden by nine points. A week later, uh, through yesterday... Biden is beating Sanders by 15 points a 24 point turnaround. But the critical issue is, Marjorie, and I, I'm dying to talk to John King about this in the one o'clock hour of the 14 states voting today, all of early voting right. except Alabama. The question is sort of like Nevada and the great performance of the debate by Warren, which got her virtually nothing, have so many people voted in these 13 states already that the benefit that uh, Biden is seeing in the polls will be muted by the fact that most people voted before uh, all this happened. Did you mention Texas? No. Second
2: biggest prize today? Yep. Uh, The Sam Hill story mentions that uh, Sanders led in every poll in Texas this January, uh, but a new survey released Tuesday finds this lead down to one point data for progress. That's another organization finds Biden Mm -hmm. ahead by two points, the 538, that's out of the uh, is that still with the New York Times 5:38? I think so. They now count Biden as the favorite to win the most delegates in Texas, and that's the second biggest prize after California.
1: You know, it also, you know, it's unbelievable. We're going to talk to Ed Davis in a bit, who is the former police commissioner, who's also running uh, uh, Bloomberg's campaign in Massachusetts. This is the first day, after a half billion dollars spent, this is the first day anybody gets to vote outside of New York City ever for Michael Bloomberg. It could be a springboard day for him, or maybe because of the resurgence of Biden, it could be Bloomberg's first and last day in this campaign. Who knows? And by the way, if you didn't stay up late last night, we should share with you this. Here is uh, Pete Buttigieg and then Amy Klobuchar uh, at a rally in Texas endorsing the candidacy of Joe Biden. The whole idea was about rallying the country together to defeat Donald Trump and to win the era for the values that we share. And that was always a goal that was much bigger than me becoming president. And it is in the name of that very same goal that I'm
3: delighted to endorse and support Joe Biden for president.
4: It is up to us, all of us, to put our country back together to heal this country and then to build something even greater. I believe we can do this together. And that is why today I am ending my campaign and endorsing Joe Biden for
1: president. By the way, we were supposed to have Amy Klobuchar's cell phone with us today, but she didn't quite make it to <laughs> no, Super Tuesday, she so didn't. she will not be uh, she didn't joining make it.
2: us. But I was saying before the show, I mean... You, if you're into politics and you're watching the cable shows and you're reading the websites that have to do with politics, you know Politico, etc., I mean, the Democratic establishment has been repeatedly saying, much to the annoyance of a lot of Bernie people, that it can't, win, it can't win, it can't win, it can't win, it can't win. So you wonder whether this consolidation of these establishment people and the other candidates, you know, that have all come out now for uh, for Biden, is. Going to make a big difference. Well, including I
1: think. Beto O'Rourke, we should say, who obviously has some clout in uh, Texas. Yes, absolutely. Yesterday, too. So we'll take your calls for a bit. And then again, uh, throughout the show, we're going to be joined by candidates, by surrogates. We're going to talk to Sarah Burns later, who has made a terrific documentary that is going to air in later March on PBS about uh, public housing in general and uh, one particular public housing authority in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. We're going to talk to Carol Rose at some point from the Civil Liberties Union about all these voting rights cases. They have really voting suppression cases around the country. But let's take some calls. Christina from citroen you're first on Boston Public Radio. Hi there.
0: Hi, how are you? Excellent. Hi, fine, thanks. Um, So I voted for Joe Biden, but it was so hard. I had no idea what to do. Um, I'm 35. Hey, um, my husband's an independent, but he normally votes Republican, I'm Democrat, and um, he, my husband said if Mike Bloomberg was the candidate, he would vote for him over Trump, but if Bernie Sanders was the candidate, he would vote for Trump, and he didn't even vote for Trump when it was Hillary and Trump, like he... Absolutely cannot stand Trump, but he hates Bernie that much that he would actually vote for Trump. So, so I was like, maybe I should vote for Mike Bloomberg, but I just didn't know what to do. So
2: Christina, is your husband? Uh, it, it's the economy for him.
1: It's you know everyone's four hundred and one ks, etc. Okay. Yeah, okay. he's in
0: finance. So mm-hmm. yeah. exactly.
1: Did you so, mention, really Christina? Did it. you you yeah. went out for a split second in my headphone? Did you mention Biden in there and your husband, or did you not?
0: I. Ended up voting for Biden. I felt like I was doing a good Democratic thing because it's clear that's what the party wants me to do. Well, so,
1: Christina, before you go away, did, was your Biden vote? Uh, did you know you're voting for Biden before South Carolina, or did South Carolina and this swath no, of endorsements? Yeah,
0: I yeah. I didn't know until all the endorsements, and wow. then I decided to just go with Biden. Yeah.
2: And hey, one last thing, Christina. I wasn't clear. It, it, your husband said he voted for Bloomberg over, over uh, Trump, but will he vote for Biden over Trump, or is he uh, with Bloomberg or nothing?
0: I think if it were Biden and Trump, I think what he said he'd do is he would just write someone in, which is what he did with Hillary and
2: Trump. Okay. Christina, uh, I have a
1: suggestion. Tell your husband to give yeah. us a call before 2 o'clock, 877 301 897 Christina, thank you for uh, calling.
2: You know that's a big thing to so many what people. Is? I hear just it, well, the, people's 401ks. Yeah. You know, half of America has 401ks. People's 401ks are through the roof. I have a good friend who's a Democrat. He's been a Democrat all his life, and but he's getting close to retirement. What's he thinking about? He's thinking about his 401k, and he's afraid that if Bernie Sanders becomes the president of the United States, his 401k is going to be cut in half, and he's going to be based on what? Uh, based on. His being a socialist and people in Wall Street you know, being socialist. upset, Democratic Socialists, Wall Street being upset, the pharmaceutical industry is being upset, blah, 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 blah. So it, even people that can't stand Trump, I mean, if your first thing is your 401k and you can't understand why people are worried about that, it's a big deal. Lori from Paxton. Hi, Lori. Hey, Lori. Hi, Jim. Hi, Marjorie. Hey. Um,
5: I'm outside walking a dog, so bear with me. Sure. So, um, so can I talk about all the candidates? That, sure. That
2: <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead. Okay. Okay,
5: so I I voted for Warren because I think she's brilliant and has great policies, and she's a fighter. Um, So I I know she would make a great president, plus she's a woman, so she has that sometimes more compassionate side that we need in our government and our country. Um, But um, after the first couple of, um, after um, New Hampshire and Nevada, I was feeling the burn, so I was really torn, so it was difficult. Um, so I wanted to vote for Bernie again, like I had the first time, until Hillary was the nominee. Um, and regarding Bloomberg, he just reminds me of another Trump. Um, you know, he's not as evil, maybe, and a <laughs> mafioso wannabe. What a hell of an
1: endorsement! And,
5: and, and maybe not as narcissistic as Trump, but he's—you know—he's buying his way in. Trump had Russia helping him, and and Bloomberg is using his billions. So. No for Bloomberg.
1: And How about and Biden? I'm glad,
5: Amy. Um Biden needs a senility test. My dad has early dementia and, and I think Joe Biden does too. Oh jeez. A nice guy. He has experience but and I would vote for him in a minute if he were the nominee. But he's too old and mine doesn't work right anymore. So. Lori,
1: Laurie, Laurie, thanks. You that know, was a good breakdown of the four. By the way, Lori's about the only caller we've had in a few days who's concerned. I'm not going into the dementia yeah. area concern about the age issue. Nobody appears to care. Yesterday, yeah. I was having the discussion with you. You don't care that the three front-running guys on the Democratic side are well, all I about do. to be octogenarians? You well, know, I do.
2: This is a case where you've got to have a really good – you can't have like a Sarah Palin redux kind of thing. You've got to have a really good vice president that people have confidence in that they think can pick up the mantle should you need a third or fourth or fifth stent. That's I'm a hell not, of a way to – How many stents can you get? Two each, I, I
1: think. I don't know. <laughs> That's a hell of a way to pick a. Uh, well, I, I don't think, know if it's too. Easy. That's it, a hell of a way to pick no, a president. There is
2: no runaway superstar in this race, right? There's no Bill Clinton. There's no Barack Obama. Are you kidding a, me?
1: People what? who support Bernie Sanders think he is the second coming. I know. Look but at I think these. There was a there's a rally bit, three blocks yes, from here but, on Saturday. Well,
2: I would argue, Jim, that there was more of a consensus across. I mean, a lot of people, once, once Barack Obama started to win, it was only we can actually elect a black guy. I think there was a coalition around him that has not emerged around Bernie Sanders. You were now, arguing
1: you... a week ago that Sanders could put that thing together and could clearly win. What happened in a week? Well, I think South he, Carolina? I think,
2: I think he probably can, but when you read and you listen, I mean, a lot of people that are very uh, smarter than I am about this think that he has not expanded his coalition the way he expected to, and so th- therefore he can't win. On the other hand, you have people saying that he will win. You just quoted that New York Times piece, so, who knows, Jim? Who knows? Let's go to Mike from a
1: car. Hi, Mike. Hey, Mike. Hi. Love the show. Thanks. I, uh,
6: when I get off work, my next stop will be the vote, and it will be for Elizabeth Warren. Why? Well, she's given really detailed plans on every front, and I like the way they sound. She's going to take on everything that's hurting the country, straight up. Uh, she's sort to of turn the tide. She's a fighter. She's uh, a feisty girl. And I, I just think she's the person that can take Trump down. I think Biden is, like the last lady said, Trump will eat him alive. He doesn't have the, uh, I don't think he'll have the steam in the boiler to keep up with Trump and his onslaught of insults. Uh, as far as Bernie is, I love Bernie. I was a supporter of his. But I think Bernie is like Biden. Bernie has a message that is just a broken record. Not a lot of detail, and I like what it sounds like, but I do believe he'll struggle. When he debated uh, Hillary, he fell behind in the debate by not picking up on things she said earlier in the debate he could have used later in the debate because his mind was too brittle to pick that up. I was yelling at the TV, telling him, you know, what she just said 10 minutes earlier, It's
1: contradicted. He didn't pick it up. Well, I'll tell you, you know, to use the expression that you used, Mike, uh, I've watched every single one of these debates. I would never use the word brittle uh, to discuss Sanders' mind. And I don't remember the details of 2016. I have to say, I mean, Marjorie always uses the word. Doesn't mean one likes the authenticity, but to say this guy. Is uh, t- not authentic. I know you're not saying it, but for anybody to suggest he's not exactly who he says he is, and how sh- confident he is in his own boots, is really—I mean, he is who he is. And I, I, the, the brittle description I have never felt. But thank you very much uh, for your call. Have you in all these debates?
2: Well, I, I think I think that the only person who gets, you know concern from voters about the senile dementia thing. is Biden. It's oh, I don't not, think he
1: meant brittle in that. Not, maybe that is what I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's
2: not Sanders.
1: I didn't think he meant brittle in, in that regard. Oh, I don't think it. Maybe, well, he maybe he did. He did. Maybe, maybe
2: he's stuck in a particular message. You know, it's interesting that Chris Matthews, who a long time wow, uh, host incredible. of MSNBC, one of the criticisms. Who
1: is now no longer no the host. Longer, the yeah, yeah he did a part very part
2: odd thing. It, on television last night, announced he was retiring. Did you watch that? I did not. Well, I, I saw I saw the actual follow-up. I didn't see it when it happened last night. Announced he was leaving, and among the things that he was uh, criticized for was his interview with Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. where he went uh, she got up in the debate and talked about Bloomberg allegedly saying kill it about a woman that was mm-hmm. pregnant in his office and, and uh, uh, he kept saying to her uh, you know, well Bloomberg said he didn't say that, Bloomberg didn't, and she came back and I'm paraphrasing, and so well, I, I believe her, why, why should I believe him, why should I believe her, but it was viewed by many people as kind of a condescending interview of Elizabeth Warren, in which she just pushed back at him greatly, and he was criticized too I didn't even know this um, for disparaging remarks or sexist remarks he made to women in his in his waiting room. Well, but I think I,
1: that final piece by that woman he interviewed, Laura, is it Bar- uh, Bassett? Bar- I, I can't think remember Bassett. Her name. It
2: was in Gentleman. It was in GQ. Right, GQ. she had written yeah. a piece a
1: couple of years ago describing what happened, but not naming Matthews. She did name Matthews a couple of days ago. Shortly after that, he did not participate in the coverage for MSNBC in South right. Carolina. And then last night he came on television. I think a minute and forty nine seconds said farewell. And uh, he was gone mid show, not even mid show. Two minutes into no, I know. Show. the show, ke- Steve Carneki <laughs> came back, took over the show. and looked well, shell shocked.
2: Yeah, well, that now was what? a lot to take in. Yeah, the commercial, and then all of a sudden, there he is hosting the show. I mean, he hosts his own show, but it's a little uh, unnerving. Anyway, eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy is our number. Uh, let's go to Molly in West Newbury. Hi, Molly. Hey, Molly.
7: Hi. How are you? Great. Great. Good. So I voted for Biden with my heart in my hands. Uh, I really believe Warren would be the better candidate. But after the endorsements yesterday with Klobuchar wow. and Buttigieg, I just um, felt that the, that's where the party is leaning. And if that's where they're going, I need to go with who's going to win. Uh, since 2016, my blood pressure's up, my cholesterol's up, and, uh, join the club. I just, I, I just have to go with who's going to take this, uh, orange person out, and this is what I need to do, and as I'm speaking to you, I'm writing postcards to Wisconsin to try and get out the vote there. Oh, good um, for you. I just, um, I just feel that uh, it needs. we need a change, and it ha- whoever's going to take this out is what, what will we need to focus
6: on. You know what's on.
1: interesting? I know it's self-selecting, and it's random sampling. We have two calls of the first four calls we've taken where people decided literally in the last, including Molly from West Newsbury, Newbury in the last couple of days, that Joe Biden was uh, their person, even though he hadn't been well, I think their first choice. Molly, thank you for uh, the don't call. Don't you
2: think a lot of people have been all over the place? I mean, I was Sherrod Brown, but he never ran, so that took care of that. But the well, you know, of I, Ohio- don't,
1: I don't even think of I mean, South Carolina alone. I think what he has shown since. I mean, this Virginia surge is 24-point turnaround in uh, literally a week. As I said, uh, Sanders had been up 9, now Biden's up 15 in the latest poll. Uh, it's not just, uh, it's obviously Terry McCullough, former governor, yep. endorsed them. Other Virginia yep. leaders in, uh, endorsed them. And then this thing last night was a pretty huge With showing and of strength. And O'Rourke. I yeah, mean, that's O'Rourke. A, it's a hell of a, a night. But again, I'm dying to talk to John King because depending, and I'll say it again, depending on how many people voted early, even if people were moved, unlike Molly and the prior caller. If you've already voted, it doesn't really matter how much of a showing of strength from Joe Biden uh, you've seen in the last few days. You've already cast your vote.
2: Well, I also wonder, I don't think we know yet what percentage of people have voted earlier. No,
1: we don't. But we know the Nevada effect, I think it was more than 50%. It was a huge number. It was yeah. 75,000 people had voted in the caucuses before the caucuses began, which means that none of them could take into account what I think virtually everybody agreed was the best debate performance for Elizabeth Warren in the whole campaign. And I think she probably suffered as a result. And we'll see how much of the voting happens after South Carolina and last night in Texas.
2: Bernier from Hyde Park. Hi, Bernier. Did
1: you make up your mind, Bernier, or are you still waiting?
8: (laughs) Good morning. I did make up my mind. Who you vote for? I voted for Elizabeth um, because she's our senator, and I also like her. And I wish she were the one who was um, trending instead of Bernie. Mm -hmm. I like Bernie. As I said, the age thing, Jimmy, I agree with you. I think, you know, Bernie... And Biden, they both are too old. Biden, I do not want him because of the fact that I feel like the, the middle of the party, the, the, how do you call them, the... Um, um, moderates? The moderates, yeah. The moderates of, of the party have taken the progressive for granted for the longest, longest time. And the Democratic Party has been trending right for too long. Since Bill Clinton, and his clever, slick, willy way, he's been <laughs> pushing the party to the right. And I think Bernie is the one that putting the party where it belongs. I'm not saying he has to go as left as Bernie, but I think the Democratic Party needs to stand for what it used to stand for. Can you imagine Kennedy? He would be rolling under his grave right now if he were to see what the Democratic Party stands for. We're talking
1: about, I assume, Ted Kennedy in
8: this regard, correct? Absolutely, Ted Kennedy, not Tony Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, Ted Kennedy. So I feel like the Democrats, in their quest to win, had become Republicans, the Republicans of yesteryear, the Northern Republicans, the... Bob Dole, Republican, before he got crazy and voted for, for Trump. You know, uh, it's just ridiculous. But Elizabeth Warren, all the way today. Do
1: you know, by the way, you mentioned Bob Dole. I can't believe Marjorie didn't say Bob Dole was totally sane. Then he started taking Viagra and it all came apart <laughs> right after that. Did you notice that, no, Premier? Pretty- that- no, the joke
8: was. It's <laughs> near to, Viagra. He has no business taking Viagra. <laughs>
1: thanks for. Oh, yeah. Well, no, If that's what he's the, into, I admire his willingness to talk about the it. Joke her, thanks for the call.
2: About Bob Dole. I know. Is it, I know. When he started to take Viagra, <laughs> Elizabeth Dole, his wife, decided it was time for run, to run for the country because, uh, run, run for, for president, president, because Bob Dole was, you know, suddenly a spring chicken and Elizabeth Dole thought desk. that she'd done enough for a country at that point, And so she decided to head out to Wisconsin to begin campaigning.
1: <laughs> Anywhere. Any state. <laughs>
2: Anywhere. That's right, Paula.
1: You're in a car. You're on Boston Public Radio. We're live from the Boston Public Library with uh, Marjorie Egan and me, Jim Browdy. Hi. Hi.
9: Thank you for taking the call. Sure. I wanted to I wanted to address something that the woman who discussed what her husband was doing. Yes. Was.
1: Hey, hey Paula, can I do do me a favor? Can I put you on hold for about 30 seconds? Because we're joined by a guest, and as soon as—not 30 seconds, a few minutes. And as soon as we're uh, done uh, with this call, we will get back to you. So, Paula, stick around. But first, there was a time when nobody took Donald Trump's 2016 campaign seriously an attitude shared among the media at the time, Democrats, establishment Republicans, and a lot of the electorate. Today, everybody takes him seriously to the point that electing a candidate who could be Trump has become a sole criterion for many Democratic voters. Joining us is a man who helped Trump get to this point. Corey, let Trump be Trump Lewandowski, Trump's former 2016 campaign manager. Corey's now a senior advisor to Trump's reelection campaign. Corey, good to talk to you as always. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
2: Hey, thank you very much for calling us, Corey. So uh, I, I know that when you were in uh, D.C., you, had the, you were actually able to look right into the White House and sometimes even see what the president is doing. So I wonder if you have any insight about what he does on Super Tuesday. Will he be, will he be uh, uh, watching the returns come in? Will he have a party? Do you have any idea what President Trump does on this big election day?
10: Well, you know, I, I had the privilege to travel on Air Force One yesterday with the president. We went down to North Carolina and back. Uh, and so we talked about Super Tuesday, or as Joe Biden calls it, Super Thursday. Um, <laughs> That's unkind. And, and so, you know, uh, <laughs> Go you know, ahead. But, 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 hey, but, hey these, these are minor details. Look, the president, is, as I think uh, we have seen, is going to be giving a briefing on the coronavirus update, which I think is very important. Uh, obviously, we saw that the Fed cut uh, the rates a little bit today, which is something the president had been advocating for. So He will be watching, but it's not a big event at the White House. I think he's going to do it in the residence tonight to see um, where Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren end up and you know, watch Mini Mike destroy like $800 million of cash and just burn it in flames.
2: One thing before we move on to the race, Corey Lewandowski, uh, Air Force One, pretty fun, pretty nice, good food, good oh, view, nice it's, seats. It's,
10: well, it's, it's the most amazing thing. It's the most iconic plane in the world and uh, it is a privilege and an honor to have the opportunity to fly any anytime on that, and I had the opportunity to do that yesterday with the President, riding the beast a little bit, which is his uh, his presidential limousine, and spent about eight hours with the president yesterday and uh, you know for a kid from Lowell mass it's a pretty special thing
1: so a kid from Lowell Mass, you mentioned coronavirus, and I have listened a couple of times not to Trump the elder as in President Trump but uh trump jr on fox and friends on friday i'm sure you've heard this from cpac accusing democrats of politicizing coronavirus just listen to this with us Corey, if you would
3: for them to try to take a pandemic and seemingly hope that it comes here and kills millions of people so that they could end Donald Trump's streak of winning is a new level of sickness. You know, I don't know if this is coronavirus or Trump derangement syndrome, but these people are infected badly.
1: Corey, you know his son, too. I, I, I'm serious. Is he lost his marbles? No one really believes that any Democrat wants to see anybody die so that Donald Trump can get uh, uh, ousted from office. Do they or do they? No, look, I don't think, look, nobody, uh, no American, no person in this world wants to
10: see anybody die from what is a potentially very dangerous pandemic. And I think, and what has been discussed is, you know, having a task force, hopefully, of uh, a bipartisan nature of Republicans and Democrats who can all agree that we have to have every resource of the federal government involved to make sure that we limit any additional exposure that people understand how to potentially prevent uh, the spread of this terrible thing, which includes washing your hands and making sure that, uh, you know, maybe we're not in as close proximity to others. But but the point is, this is not a partisan issue. And, and I know Don very well. Uh, I think sometimes, you know, his family gets attacked and Don gets attacked for a lot of things, but I don't think there's any Democrat in this country uh, who wants to see an American die
1: over some pandemic. You know, Corey, one of the reasons we're really glad that you called in is because, as you know, the president's on the ballot today in Massachusetts. But the reason we were doubly happy, Marjorie and I were searching all morning. We couldn't find the date of the first Trump debate. Do you know what date that will be held or no? Yeah, I think it's November 4th of 2020 is the date that we've locked in on that one. In all seriousness, in all seriousness, Corey, I mean, Governor Weld has a serious record. He was a two-term, very popular governor in Massachusetts. Obviously a totally different worldview of where the Republican Party should be and what the presidency should be. But he's not some crackpot. Why is the president not debating him? So, I,
10: I don't know. I, I know for a fact Bill Weld has not secured any delegates in any of the states so far. Not one delegate in New Hampshire. Donald Trump has all 22 from there. Not one delegate in Iowa. Bill Weld has not qualified even to be on the ballot in the state of New York. So, he's not a serious candidate, is the truth. He hasn't raised any real money. Uh, and so, just because he was elected in the mid 90s and left office some 20 plus years ago, ran as a libertarian four years ago on the vice presidential ticket does not rise to the level of having him have the opportunity to be on the debate stage with the fitting president of the United States.
1: Yeah, but wait a second. Unlike Gary Johnson, he at least knew where Aleppo was. So that is, That's is true. We're talking to Corey Lewandowski, senior advisor to uh, the Trump re-election campaign. Hey,
2: Corey Lewandowski, one more thing from me. Uh, normally, presidents don't talk about who they uh, want to run against. It does seem that the president wants to run against Bernie Sanders, even though Sanders has done pretty well. 47 out of 50 uh, uh, in polls says he could uh, beat the president. Why Sanders, not Biden? Well, I think
10: if you look at, at Bernie Sanders, who I believe is going to win in the state of Massachusetts tonight, he's going to win in Vermont, he's going to win in California. And look, that may be uh, his victory in Massachusetts today, may be the end of Elizabeth Warren's campaign. But I think it's a true dichotomy in their philosophies. And you have the opportunity to put in front of the electorate, People who have two fundamentally different worldviews, one who believes in capitalism and one who believes in socialism, one who believes the government should run health care and one who doesn't believe the government should run health care. And that's what it's really about is giving the electorate the opportunity to choose the path of which way our country goes forward. And there is no bigger dichotomy between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders for the direction of the country. So I think Bernie Sanders probably will win the plurality of the delegates. I don't know if he'll get to the 1991 requisite before he gets to their convention. But if that's what this is about, Bernie Sanders raised $46.5 million in the month of February from 2.2 million donors. He's a real candidate. And uh, look, he has a fundamentally different worldview for the direction of this country. And I think the president's willing to put his positions up against that of Bernie Sanders and let the electorate decide.
1: Corey Lewandowski, yeah. as always, we really appreciate yeah, your thank time. You Thanks so much. Very much for
2: your time, Corey. Corey, thank Lew- you, guys. Thank you. Corey Lewandowski is a senior advisor to President Trump's re-election campaign and Trump's former 2016 campaign manager. Up next, we continue our Super Tuesday coverage, taking all your calls and emails, 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We are broadcasting live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
8: Welcome
1: back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. If you're just tuning in, we're taking your calls on all things Super Tuesday at 877-301-897. We spoke to Corey Lewandowski a couple of minutes ago, senior advisor to the president. We will speak to candidates and surrogates for virtually all the campaigns before now and 2 o'clock, but in between, it's you at 877-301-8970. just
2: want to get a few of the emails. Sure. Jane says she, uh, on the way to town hall, she voted last uh, early last week. On the way, she thought she'd vote for Buttigieg. Then I went to Klobuchar. As I drove, I made a decision to vote for someone who could actually win. She went for Biden, so chose the volatility of this race. Nancy King says, I want change. I want revolution. I want competence. I want a woman. That's Elizabeth Warren. And uh, who just said... Uh, oh, Ken says... Uh, poor Biden, he seems unable to complete a cogent thought without a mini-gaff. Have you seen him speak without a teleprompter? Uh, recently, he gets even the days of the week wrong, so he's also worried about By the way,
1: I saw him at CNN Town Hall last week and with no teleprompter, and he was terrific. Paula, we interrupted your call for Corey Lewandowski. Thanks for your patience. Uh, You're okay. back on Boston Public Radio. Hey there. Okay, been- Paula, you got to turn the radio down. Uh, We'll try one more time. Paula, you're on Boston Public Radio.
2: Uh, I think we lost I feel bad,
1: Paula. We can't do it. Uh, Yesterday, speaking of candidates, yesterday Senator Warren herself called in. And by the way, when you listen to this radio, you should particularly listen to the last question asked by Marjorie Egan. And only Marjorie Egan could ask this question of Senator Warren. Here she is. Senator, thanks so much for calling in.
7: Oh, thank you for having me. It's always good to talk with you.
2: Well, Senator, so Super Tuesday is tomorrow. Give us uh, give us your pitch for um, why you should uh, clean up in tomorrow's votes, particularly here in Massachusetts.
7: Oh, you know, look, I think that what we've seen so far is the Democratic Party is a progressive party, and progressive ideas are popular. I also think that progressive ideas are going to be hard to get past, and that we need someone who has a track record of getting it done. I see it as we're going to get one shot to be able to do this, to make some of the changes we really, really need to make in this country. And I think it's a better bet to go with someone who has a track record of doing it. And that's what I got.
2: Senator, am I hearing uh, the famous uh, Bailey in the background barking? <laughs> Is that your no, dog? No, actually, it's a neighbor's dog. Oh, it's a neighbor's dog, oh. Bailey okay. can't
7: be bothered to, to bark too much. He's Bailey's, Bailey's too copacetic for that. Oh, okay. We were Just we checking. were hoping
1: we could actually interview Bailey for a couple of <laughs> minutes, but obviously it's not going to happen. Yeah, you know, uh, Senator Warren, the, a lot of people were saying after the South Carolina results, Warren's going to drop out of this thing. Roger Lau, your campaign manager, put out an email to your supporters, not only saying that you were not dropping out, but that there's a path to victory come the convention, particularly if no one's got the 1900, whatever it is, 91 uh, uh, delegates. Can you Give us a brief version of that case, please. So, look,
7: I'm out there fighting to get enough delegates to win it on the first ballot. That's exactly what I'm doing. And uh, one of the consequences of my making the decision early on not to spend a lot of time fundraising, 70 percent of my time is the estimate for most other folks, is that I got to go a lot of places. I've been to 30 states in Puerto Rico We've built out operations in all of these states and have places where volunteers come in and are part of this. You know, we're getting down now to the short strokes. We had a huge field, and I think that gave people lots of, oh, I like this thing about that one, and I understand that. Look, I think everybody who's been on the Democratic stage would make a better president than Donald Trump. But now we're getting down to this fundamental question about who exactly is going to be the nominee here we can't do a repeat of 2016 uh... we got to come together as a party and my argument here is we got to come together as a party behind a progressive agenda because that's what democrats and i think that's what americans are looking for and we got to come together behind somebody who's a Democrat who works well with all parts of our party and who has so has both the vision but also has some on-the-ground, let's get this done. That's, that's me.
1: Before you go, were you upset that Sanders came and campaigned in Massachusetts over the weekend, Senator Sanders?
7: Of course not. No, not at all. Not at all. Look, he's out there talking about the things he believes in. And I think that's terrific. That's what we should be doing as Democrats. He inspires a bunch of people to stand up and say yes on health care, or I'm hoping yes on child care, or yes on increasing social security. That's good, because those are the things we should be talking about. And we should be showing not just the folks of Massachusetts, but the whole country – what it means to be a Democrat, what we get out there and fight for. I just think that's crucial. We can't be this, you know, just kind of soft, oh yeah, mm-hmm, a few nice words. We gotta show what we're willing to fight for. And then here's what's crucial to me. Come January, 2021, we better be ready to deliver because we can't ask people to march up this hill with us again and again and again and walk away without making some big changes that people need. You know, this is about power. It's about who's got it and who's never had it and how we make some changes in 2020. And I've loved every minute of this fight. But what I'm going to love even better is being able to make some real change.
2: Well, Senator, clearly making some real change is something that you have mentioned over and over again. So there have been rumors that the problem for Senator uh, uh, Sanders making changes is that he eats alone in the senatorial lunchroom. Is is that true? (laughs) Yeah. I, 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 yeah. uh, I think that's
1: your answer, Marjorie.
2: Okay. I'm just checking. I thought that was true. He had to eat all by himself. and No one would sit with him. But maybe that's not really true.
1: That's the longest I've ever heard Elizabeth Warren um, be silent, by the way, in all the years we have uh, known her. Senator, we wish you a lot. Uh, we wish you a lot of luck tomorrow. Yeah. And thanks for uh, a few Thank minutes. You. We know it's precious time. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you very
2: much, Thank Senator Warren, no. for making. Yes, I, I,
7: appreciate, I appreciate your doing this. And I just want to say, you know, I paused to think 10 years ago I wasn't even in electoral politics.
2: No, you weren't. Remember? No. Yeah. Well, yeah, we too.
7: Professor. And and when people said, nobody's going to run against Scott Brown or, you know, we're not going to have somebody who will be able to get out there and, and take this fight on, I did. And folks all across Massachusetts, people I didn't know, i would never been part of, said, you know what? You take the lead point, and we'll step in and help you. We'll do this part. We'll volunteer. We'll pitch in some money. We'll help open your offices. We'll have house parties. The people of Massachusetts have been so incredibly generous to me and have put me in this position to be able to get out and make these fights, and I'm just deeply,
1: deeply grateful. Senator, Senator, thanks so much.
2: Thank you again for taking the time, and we wish you much good luck tomorrow. Lots of luck
1: tomorrow. Marjorie, you are unbelievable. I, first of all, I timed it. It was 25 seconds. After you asked the question about Bernie Sanders eating alone in the lunchroom well, that's the story, at the Capitol, right? I, I'm not quarreling with you. 25 seconds. We're a woman. I, yep. Have you ever heard a one-second silence in any conversation we've ever had with well, Elizabeth Warren?
2: Maybe not, but you do feel bad for That—that's a theory, right? That he can't get along with any of his colleagues, and so he has to sit alone, having his little well, peanut theory. butter and jelly sandwich all by himself. But
1: Marjorie did not stop with that. Right. In a couple of minutes, we'll play an interview we did with the deputy campaign manager for Sanders himself, and of course, Marjorie asked him as well. But first, Michael from Walston, you've been very patient. Welcome to the show. Hi, Michael.
6: How are you doing? Hey, listen. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping to see Trump leave office uh, you know, after one term. Whether or not he needs to be escorted out, we'll have to see. <laughs> but I've got to say, I've got to admit something. I am really looking forward to, if Elizabeth loses here at home today, I am really looking forward to watching these two go at it, Bernie and Biden. Um, I think it's going to be a long, drawn-out, just bare-knuckled slugfest, and uh, I'm looking forward to
1: it. I Do who you vote? Michael, did you vote already or no?
6: I will when I'm done with work. I'm going Bernie. Um, went to school in Vermont. I've had lunch with him. It was years ago. I believe what he says. It's held true. Um, I don't know if he'd make an effective present, to be honest. Um, but I'm going to go with my gut and my feeling. I'm going with Bernie.
2: Michael, Michael. you had lunch with him? Yeah. We were just talking about that. How'd that go?
6: Yeah, it was about 15 years ago in Burlington, Vermont. Yeah? I went to a small little, uh, um, uh, little little health food store there. He was in there, a real nice guy. Um, did he say, Michael?
1: Michael, M- M- Did he say to you at the time... This is great because nobody in the Senate will ever eat lunch with me? Did it? We're trying to break a story here. Did Apparently not. Michael, thank you very much uh, for, your, uh, for your call. <clears throat>
2: okay, coming up, we're going to su- uh, continue rather our Super Tuesday coverage. We'll hear from Bernie Sanders' campaign next. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, broadcasting live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan, live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library with our special Super Tuesday coverage. By the way, I assume you know this. Polls are open until 8 o'clock here in Massachusetts, so if you haven't voted, please uh, do. We'll get back to your calls in a second at 877-301-8970. But as we've said, we've invited all the campaigns to call in to make their final primary 2020 pitch to you. And uh, yesterday when we spoke to Bernie Sanders' deputy campaign manager, Ari Robinoff, as you'll hear in a minute, Marjorie continued her investigative reporting on the issue right. of with whom right. Senator Sanders eats or does not. But first, we got to a few other issues. Here is uh, Ari Robinoft. Ari, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
2: So, Ari, give us, as we have other candidates, give us your pitch.
11: Look, Bernie Sanders is has run a campaign that is a campaign by the working class, for the working class and of the working class. We are a campaign that believes that health care is a right. We are a campaign that believes people shouldn't be struggling to pay for college. We are a campaign that believes billionaires and corporations should pay their fair taxes. And we're a campaign that can get that all done. We've proven again and again and again we can build the coalition that is necessary to to beat Donald Trump, who is the most dangerous president in the history of our country.
1: You know, Ari, as you know, uh, two candidates uh, out who... The conventional wisdom is help Joe Biden, Klobuchar, and Buttigieg. Warren, who we've spoken to, staying in, arguably, if she left, would be better for you. Does this raise your, let's call it concern, quotient for Super Tuesday? Not
11: not in the slightest for, for a number of reasons. We believe the state lineup on Super Tuesday is particularly strong for us. We believe we are the one campaign that can actually get delegates in every state on Super Tuesday. Um, and we believe we can we can win most states. And look, I think candidates have to make their own decisions about when they think it's appropriate to lead the race, when they think they should end their campaign. But we know our campaign is strong and in a position to win, regardless of what other candidates do.
2: I was talking with uh, Ari Robinoff. You see uh... Deputy Campaign Manager for Senator Bernie Sanders, Ari, um, the the rap you always hear, you know, from people that do not want Bernie Sanders to win, is that you can't, we can't elect a socialist in America. I understand he's a democratic socialist, but how do you? What's your rejoinder to the uh, socialism makes everybody nervous uh, line?
11: Yeah, look, Bernie Sanders is the one candidate who can say that in I believe seventy of the last seventy five public polls taken, he defeats Donald Trump. He defeats Donald Trump in state after state after state. A recent poll was done in Pennsylvania, kind of a critical state, Pen, you know, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. He was the only candidate up on Donald Trump. And the, the, the truth about that is, look, Bernie Sanders is a Democratic socialist. He, is, he has said it, right? It's something that everybody knows, and he still defeats Donald Trump. So, And he's the only candidate who can say he defeats Donald Trump again and again and again and again in these polls. Now, will beating Donald Trump be easy? Of course not. It will be difficult for every candidate. But we believe Bernie Sanders' message that, that the working class of this country, black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, needs to unite and fight for their rights. Is a strong message to win this campaign.
1: You know, Ari, we had Amy. Senator Klobuchar was scheduled to call on herself, and we were dying to ask her the question that we've wanted to ask since February about the infamous comb and salad issue with his, uh, her staff that arose uh, uh, again in the New York Times in February. You work for Sanders, not just in his campaign. You work for him as a as as a senator, correct?
11: I, I did before the campaign.
1: What's he like to What's he like as a boss?
11: Look, I'll say this. I, as a staff member, I probably spend more time with the senator in my job than almost any other person. I am traveling with him about 80% of the time. I mean, actually, I had to walk inside before the interview because I'm at a rally in Utah mm. right now, a uh, giant rally. And look, he, look, Bernie Sanders is actually one of the best bosses I, I've ever worked for. He actually is, you know, he he expects high standards, but frankly. Every politician I've worked for expects high standards, but he also is deeply caring, deeply nice. He's somebody who has really become a friend of mine. And he's. And to be honest, the other thing that people don't know is how much him and Jane care about family. Like he has been, look, this job is demanding and tough, and he has been insistent to welcome my wife onto the campaign trail to make sure we are seeing each other. And, and it's, it's the kind of caring side of him you don't often see.
2: So, Ari, we spoke with Senator Warren earlier, and she was saying that she was the better person uh, to win this or the best person to win this race because, uh, unlike Bernie Sanders, she says uh, she can get things done and that he can't get anything done. So uh, I asked her whether it was true, and what you just said about the senators being deeply caring and deeply nice may belie this, but I asked her if the rumors were true because she's a senator, that that poor Senator Sanders has to eat alone in the senatorial lunchroom. Are you ready to spell that rumor?
11: Yeah, so... There are two lunches – there are technically two lunches a week senators have on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and, and I, I have been in those a handful of times yep. in my life, and I have never seen Bernie Sanders eating alone. He's always been at tables with other senators at those two lunches.
1: Well, that's I'm very great. disappointed because I have to eat alone here at WGBH, <laughs> so I was hoping that Sanders would be on the same sort of plateau. Yeah. Hey, good luck in Utah. Good right. luck. And on Super Tuesday, and Ari, we really appreciate yeah. your time. Thanks Ari, so much. Thank you. Thank,
11: thank you, and thank everyone in Boston. Just remember, like, tomorrow's an, an important day. I'd like for everyone to vote for Bernie Sanders, but get out and vote. Like, it's an important day in our democracy. Boston knows all about that. Get out and vote. Hey, thank Ari, you, Ari.
2: Thank you very much. We appreciate the time, and good luck to you in the Sanders campaign today. That was the voice of Ari Robinoff, He's Senator Bernie Sanders' deputy campaign manager. Thanks again for joining us.
1: You should be on the Globe Spotlight team. I mean, Don't no one is more relentless you, on the big issues I get than down, you are. I
2: get down to the bottom of those you know, lunchroom.
1: We've gotten and, and a and bunch get... of communication since we hung up with Corey Lewandowski, senior advisor to the president's reelection election campaign. Well, wait a second. Why is he <coughs> on and not Weld? And the answer is uh, Governor Weld will join us uh, in the last few minutes of the show sometime after 1.40, so stick around. Uh, obviously, they're both on the ballot in uh, Massachusetts uh, today. 877-301-8970. Brian and Melrose, you've been very patient. Welcome to the show. Hi.
12: Hello.
1: Hello. So
3: thank you so much for uh, taking my call. Longtime time sure. listener, first-time caller.
1: Thank you very much. What's up?
3: Well, uh, I cast my vote this morning for Senator Bernie Sanders. uh, And what decided it for me uh, was the issue of war and peace. Uh, I don't think it gets talked enough about, but when we're choosing a president, we're choosing our next commander-in-chief, commander-in-chief of the most powerful military in the history of the world in a nation that's been at war for almost 20 years now. And I, I think it's strange that we don't talk about this more. Uh, in the context of this presidential campaign.
1: Brian, I I am stunned uh, that there haven't been more foreign policy questions, actually, in the, what have there been, 10 debates or some such thing? Or climate change. But Brian, uh, I agree with that. Brian, getting back to the the long wars, the longest one of them all has been Afghanistan. And as we discussed yesterday, this tentative peace proposal with the Taliban may be falling apart. But if it doesn't, and it leads to all American troops being withdrawn... Are you willing to give uh, Donald Trump credit for this or or no?
3: Absolutely. You are? Absolutely. I support peace in Afghanistan. Uh, (laughs) There are now people serving in Afghanistan, uh, risking their lives, uh, who were not born when the conflict uh, started. That's a very
1: good point. Uh, We need
3: peace in Afghanistan. We need need peace in Afghanistan right now. And I'll, I'll give credit to whoever gets it done. Brian, I am concerned that, uh, that, that the government of Afghanistan was not brought in on the, on the peace negotiations. Yes. I think that makes it very rickety, and
1: I, I'm very concerned about it. Brian, thank you for a fine call. We appreciate it. He's right. Foreign
2: policy and climate change. It, yeah. It, two big things we haven't really heard much well, about. Well,
1: also, coronavirus in the last debate didn't, I can't remember which of the kind was it Klobuchar? Klobuchar herself had to bring it up at that – I think it was her yeah. – at that chaotic uh, debate uh, the other night, the CBS debate.
2: Sharon from Boston, thank you for calling. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Hi. Hi.
9: I just left the Boston Public Library at the beginning of your show. I voted for – I woke up voting for Bloomberg, but I ended up voting for Biden. I love that. And why is that? Why is that? Because, because I, I truly – I think Bloomberg would be the better president. But I think Biden has a better chance of winning. Um, I've always, I was firmly behind Joe Biden until Bloomberg got into the race and I wish he had gotten in earlier. Um, I have a problem with people saying he's buying people's votes. I think he's a patriot. Everybody else, he's not buying votes. He's spending his own money versus other people's money on the exact same thing that all the other war chests are being spent on. And I think, but my other feelings for Biden is he's very uh, well respected in Washington. And I think that actually Bernie likes and respects Joe Biden. And if Biden were to get the nomination, I think Bernie will get behind Joe Biden where he failed Hillary Clinton. And I doubt that he would do the same for Bloomberg.
1: Well, let me just say, I think, I, I don't know who said this yesterday, but some, one of our guys, maybe it was Adam Riley who said it, and I am in total agreement, whether Bernie's supporters, if he does not win the nomination, go with whoever does win the nomination, if it's not him, I think it's totally a function of how it's decided. If it's decided through a fair and transparent democratic process, that's fine. If the superdelegates, which Sanders railed against four years ago, uh, uh, end up turning a plurality for him, which is what he's hoping he has, going to the convention into a loss, I'm not sure that his people are going to be ready to transfer their vote. But it's all speculation we shall see, and thank you very much for the call. But you know the old
2: cliché about how people vote for the person they most like to have a beer with? Mm. I mean, obviously. Who's the person? Joe Biden. I yeah. mean, you may talk about how he's old and he's, you know, and he misspeaks all the time and stuff like that, but I don't think there's a person in America who would just like the guy. I think anyway. most
1: young, young men in our office would most like to have a beer with Tulsa Gabbard is what <laughs> I think. Is what they would say. That could be. I don't think she's going to be the president, though. Okay, so so
2: beginning at 1 o'clock, we're going to return to take all your calls and as many emails as we can get in. But coming up, we're continuing our Super Tuesday coverage with Carol Rose, the executive director of the ACLU, with a look at their efforts uh, on voting rights all around the country. That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. We are broadcasting live, so we do every Tuesday from the Boston Public Library.
1: head on Boston Public Radio. Then there were four with Buttigieg and Klobuchar out of the picture. The stage is set for a battle between the progressives and the moderate Democrats today. Bernie Sanders has a big bank account and could win big in states like California and Texas. But will a last-minute win in South Carolina for Biden catapult him in a contention? Or will Super Tuesday be kind to Warren and Bloomberg? In a couple of minutes, we'll talk to CNN's John King. About what today could mean for the Democratic race. In
2: 1970, the Atlanta Housing Authority opened East Lake Meadows, a 650-unit public housing project on the edge of the city that mainly served Atlanta's black residents. But what started as a symbol of prosperity quickly turned into an emblem of crime and decay. In East Lake Meadows, Sarah Burns tells the story of the project through the eyes of its residents and shows how America's limited housing opportunities for African-Americans really hurt. We'll speak to her today on Boston Public Radio 89.7. WGBH. He to I am Marjorie Egan. You are listening to Boston Public Radio 897 WGBH. We are broadcasting live, so we do every Tuesday. This, of course, is a special Tuesday because it's Super Tuesday, but we're broadcasting as we do every Tuesday from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
1: And Marjorie is in search of candidates and surrogates to whom she can ask her famous question, (laughs) does Bernie Sanders actually eat alone in the Senate dining room? You're
2: making too much of this, Jim.
1: I I, want to say, I want to repeat, if the Guinness Book of World Records should be calling the longest silence from Elizabeth Warren in her career at Harvard, at Rutgers, wherever it was. When you asked her that penetrating question. In any I case, thought it was a penetrating we're question. We're continuing <laughs> our Super Tuesday coverage with Carol Rose, Executive Director of the Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, with a look at voting rights. The ACLU is currently litigating over 25 cases from challenging a state law in Indiana that lets election authorities purge voter registrations without proper notice to advocating for Election Day registration right here in Massachusetts. Carol, it's great to see you. Welcome to it's the show. It's great
13: to be here, and happy Voting Day. And I, to you, too. I have to tell you, a, I love... Election day, I love voting day because I feel like the right to vote is something that so many people have fought for in this country and still are fighting for around the world and still are fighting for in this country Where do you vote by the way Where do you vote? I vote in Lexington and what kind of turnout was there? did There's you vote huge, this morning I did and it was a huge turnout this great. morning. There were lines in a good way, um, and I by the way, I just love the people who are election uh, volunteer oh, election great. officials. they really keep our democracy going so. I'm in a a good mood because I feel like we're flexing our political muscle today.
2: Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, Election Day registration. That's one of the things that you've been involved in, an Election Day registration bill. What is it and what are you doing?
13: Yeah, well, so this is a bill that would actually enable even more people to exercise their franchise, to have the right to vote on Election Day. Uh, So this is part of an overall trend across the country. There are now 21 other states that have had Election Day registration, so we know it works. And this is pretty much backed by... You know, Bill Galvin, the Secretary of State, by Maura Healey, the Attorney General, Uh, and it really builds on a bill that we passed actually uh, last in 2018, the Automatic Voter Registration. And what Automatic Voter Registration did is said it sort of broke down barriers to voting, saying that. Uh, When you get your license at the RMV, like my daughter recently did, or when you go to MassHealth, yeah, and she got registered to vote, and so she was able to vote. Uh, So that was automatic voter registration. What's now pending, and and if people are interested, they should call their state legislators and tell them to vote yes, would be election day registration, which would actually enable another 7,000 eligible Massachusetts voters uh, to be able to vote in each election. And that means that people aren't arbitrarily cut off because of a registration deadline. Um, so there's, a, there's a, basically an arbitrary registration cutoff at 20 days uh, before an election. And this was back before we had a, computers and things like that. And so what this uh, bill will do uh, would be to say that we can have same-day registration. People can show up on election day, they can register to vote right there, and then they can exercise their franchise. And that's good for democracy. So what's the status of this bill? Uh, so the bill right now is, gonna, is in the Election Laws Committee, and its reporting date out is April 30th. Of this year, so it won't take an effect till in November. But if people are interested, and I hope they are, they can go to the aclum.org website or they can and find out how to call their legislator and say, support election day registration. It's good for America, it's good for democracy.
1: Can we talk about a corollary uh, reform that happened here a few years ago that I've changed my position on, I think, uh, almost 180 degrees? I'm assuming you were a supporter for early voting. Is that a safe? Yeah. Okay, so was I. However, Here's what's happened in between, uh, from uh, uh, my perspective, is uh, it has gone so well in so many places. For example, Nevada, which is a perfect example. I think more than half people in those pathetic caucuses actually voted in advance. Pathetic is not their fault. It's the fault of the Democratic Party. Elizabeth Warren, I'm just picking her out because it was her debate. Elizabeth Warren had arguably the best debate performance maybe in the whole campaign. It accrued to her benefit virtually not at all, and I think one could make the argument because more than half the people in Nevada had had voted. voted. Fast forward to this weekend. We read polls this morning where after South Carolina and the endorsements last night from O'Rourke and Klobuchar and Buttigieg, uh, Biden is surging. But there right. is early voting in 13 of the 40, 14 states today. Oh, Alabama is the only one. And the question is, we're, how voters feel today, may not have, right. with all the information, may not have been how they felt. I voted last Wednesday, I think it was. Right. Uh, that's number two. And number three, it is totally uh, not conclusive as to whether or not, I've read a lot of research on this actually, I have no expertise myself, that early voting increases turnout because a lot of the literature says there's so much focus on early voting that there's not as much focus on the election day itself, and the net increase is not what people thought it to be. Are right. those not legitimate concerns no, about early voting? It,
13: I mean, all of these are public policy trade-offs, Jim, but I think we always want to make it so that more people are able to exercise their franchise. You know, people can say, I want to get the final news and I want to hear the final debate and wait until, and then if they had election day registration, they'd be able to wait mm. and get all the information. To That's an point. excellent point. But I also think that the, frankly, uh, well, I understand what you're saying, and I, I think that may happen around the margins. I think the really bigger issue are the um, increasing not in Massachusetts, where I think we actually have a very good uh, bureaucracy that makes our voting work really well here for the most part. But I think there are problems around the country about fel- about disenfranchisement of people. There are poll taxes going, in there are voter IDs laws in places like Kansas. Um, in Florida, they're making people fa- fa- pay fines and fees um, that they might owe before they can vote, which effectively... Ex-felons where there tax. was
1: a constitutional amendment. That's right. Vote approved by two-thirds That's of the, the people, people right. in Florida. And
13: putting 1.4 million people on the voter yeah. rolls, right? So I think that um, we need to understand not only that this still exists, despite the fact that we you know, people think we have the right to vote across the country, uh, but it's also really the racial disparities are something people should be aware of. Okay, um, so let's,
1: uh, Can we go down? Yeah. So? And we, as I said, you have 25 mm-hmm. of those cases, you and your civil liberty union colleagues across the country. Start with Florida, if we can. Absolutely. Uh, the story and where things are.
13: Sure. So this was actually an ACLU-backed ballot initiative back in 2018. Uh, they restored the voting rights to people who had passed felony convictions uh, and expanded the voter rolls by 1.4 million people. And why is this so important? This is important because when you look at the people who've had past felony convictions, the racial disparities that are just endemic in the criminal legal system in this country uh, mean that more people of color are being denied the right to vote down in Florida. So wonderfully, this overwhelming public ballot initiative restored the right to vote for these people. That's a great victory. That was amazing back in 2018. The downside is that people who didn't want people to vote, then put up this rule that says you have to pay fines and fees in order you can do that. But just two weeks ago, I'm happy to say a federal appeals court upheld the ruling that the ACLU filed, challenging the poll tax and struck it down. So we're hopeful that this year in Florida, the 1.4 million people who are eligible to vote will actually go on and exercise so they their they. W- so this
2: was the legislature basically trying to turn around the, the will of the people in terms That's of the correct. vote. That's correct. And, That's correct. And so, so the appeals court has struck this down. So people in Florida who were felons will be able to vote without having to pay That's hundreds
13: correct. or even thousands of dollars right. in fees and fines. Because effectively it worked as a poll tax. Is
2: there any chance of an appeal happening before the election in November?
13: Uh, we- yeah, there's always a chance, but it's unlikely that the Supreme Court would actually take it up okay. and make a ruling in time for this November. So election.
2: Carol Rose from the ACLU, what's going on, in, on uh, with voting rights in New Hampshire?
13: Yeah, so it's an interesting case there, the ACLU in New Hampshire, so each state has its own ACLU office, uh, is challenging a state law that unconstitutionally restricts the right of young people to vote for students who are new to the state. So they're not letting them vote unless they change their car registration and their license. So um, that means something like five out of seven students in New Hampshire wouldn't be able to vote, like a pretty high percentage. Unless they do absentee and they can vote back home, but not. A, but they can't vote where they live and okay. where they're studying and where they would like to make a difference. Um, and so they have filed a lawsuit that the ACLU of New Hampshire is uh, litigating on their behalf, uh, basically saying that they shouldn't be forced to pay hundreds of dollars in motor vehicle registration and changing their license because, again, it serves as a barrier to voting. And I think the purpose in a democracy is to make voting as possible and free and fair as for everyone. We don't really have problems with voter fraud except for the Russian interventions at the very highest level. We don't have the day-to-day voter fraud in this country that's been a problem. So we should take every step we can, uh, and as I think we're moving toward in Massachusetts with Election Day registration, toward enabling everyone to exercise their... By the way, I'm sorry.
2: I was just going to say, is, is this, so is this because the theory is that the younger voters are going to be Democrats and the people that tried to change this or? Are- Republicans in the legislature? What's the partisan thing going on here?
13: Right. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question. Or do they just want to get more people to like change their residence to New Hampshire permanently? Well, I think I I do know,
1: even though I don't have the legal knowledge you do, I'm assuming, since it's mostly Republicans challenging, their fear is the overwhelming majority of students are going to vote for for a Democrat. And by the way, correct me if I'm wrong, was it not Chris Kobach, who was the Secretary of State of uh, of Kansas, Kansas. Mm -hmm. who was in charge of President Trump's whatever it was, uh, non-existent voter f- uh, fraud yes. uh, uh, a committee. When he was in New Hampshire, wasn't that the, the venue where he had no understanding of what the existing law was in New Hampshire? I mean, basically right. humiliated himself. He
13: humiliated himself there, and then he humiliated himself again in court, where he tried to represent himself in the state of Kansas in an ACLU lawsuit that, again, was challenging uh, he had this narrative of widespread voter fraud that was just false. And the court struck down the Kansas law and said that his testimony was incredible.
1: Well, can we say <laughs> one more thing about New Hampshire? When we were in New Hampshire for a primary week, whenever mm. that was, a few weeks, seems like a century ago, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Governor Sununu joined us. And while oh, much of the interview was rather contentious... Uh, I thought an important moment happened early in the interview. As you know that Donald Trump has said repeatedly, including when he was in New Hampshire at his rally the night before the primary, that thousands of people illegally streamed in from Massachusetts who had no right to vote in New Hampshire and voted, and were it not for that, the 3,000-vote margin for Hillary Clinton in November of 2016 wouldn't have happened and he would have won New Hampshire. Sununu acknowledged, which I have to give him credit for since he's a big supporter of the president. He didn't use these words. The president had no idea what he was talking about. There is no evidence of thousands of people illegally coming uh, uh, and voting uh, in New Hampshire on that day. He cited the student thing. He thinks there needs to be some changes around the law. That's his business. But he totally uh, uh, blew away the notion that it was illegal Massachusetts voters in New Hampshire – that gave Donald Trump. That gave Hillary Clinton her margin. That's exactly In November right. of 2016. But, you know,
13: Jim. But this. But this president and, and many of his supporters, but especially this president, he says things that aren't based in fact, um, and asserts them and uses the power of the presidency, the pulpit, uh, the bully pulpit, literally in this case, uh, to try to assert facts that simply aren't true. So the, the the narrative of widespread voter fraud is just simply not true. And I think the more important thing for us to pay attention to and to watch is to make sure that the Russians. Uh, don't continue to intervene the way that Robert Mueller said they were going to continue to do, not just in the past election, but in the upcoming election. Um, and I think it behooves all of us to pay attention to what's happening on that front and to ensure election integrity at the national level. Who's as well. doing that? Well, they
2: are. No one's doing it. They are interfering with both the Sanders campaign and the Trump campaign, supposedly, right?
13: Well, I mean, I, I will just say, hats off to all of you in the fourth estate. I actually think the fourth estate is paying a lot of attention to that. I mean, that's why I think Donald Trump sued Max Frankel in the New York Times for an opinion piece talking about this just yeah. last week. Um, but I also think that the, you know, intelligence services, if, if they aren't completely taken over by Trump and everyone fired who doesn't conform to his version of reality... Um, I think that there are efforts to try to pay attention to that, and I think that the House and the Senate continue to have oversight hearings. So I think it's important that we continue to push and exercise the remaining powers of checks and balances that we have uh, in order to ensure that when we go to the polls, we're actually having our votes counted and it's a free and fair election.
1: Can it's we wh- – uh, let's not leave this, this Max mm-hmm. Franco thing. He wrote a piece yep. in March of 2019, an op-ed piece in The New York Times – like in virtually any critical thing of this president, he threatens to sue. He never sues. Here he did.
2: Well, Frankl used the word quid pro quo,
1: which I think really annoyed the the, the, the president.
2: Well, I mean,
13: yeah, but his own... I mean, Gordon Sondland, his own ambassador to the EU, also used the term quid pro quo. I mean, I think, you know, we can... can Well, this is about fairness.
1: This is in the context... Frankel's point was in the context of Russia. And I believe that the the argument the Trump people are making is that uh, Mueller never suggested there was a quid pro quo, so this is concocted. But even if it were concocted, I'm not saying it is, Explain the law about public figures, particularly the highest-profile right. public figure in America, yeah. having a right to sue because he was done wrong <laughs> in an right. opinion,
2: by a reporter, in an right, opinion, by a columnist, a case, right. case, Which so, is not a straight news story, right. obviously. Right. So
13: the legal standard under libel law is that a, there's a provably true or false fact. And, and with a public official, you actually have to show intent and malice in saying something that you know is provably false. So it's a very high standard, virtually impossible for a public figure to actually win a libel suit in this country, as it should be, because they have the power of the pulpit. They have the power of the airwaves and the power of the government uh, behind them. So, um, so yeah, so he's not going to win that suit as a matter of law. Um, but we, we need to nonetheless make sure that he doesn't use that. Again, I keep saying the bully pulpit. And it really is appropriate to try to silence his opponents or silence anyone who might criticize him or silence anyone who might question his facts. That's a direct attack on... Our democracy, on, on our freedoms to hold this president accountable. You know, we don't have a king, we have a president. And as long as we continue to exercise our freedom of speech, our rights to the press, our freedom of the press, uh, and our right to vote and get out and vote today, And I am actually confident that we will withstand this actually very dangerous time for our democracy. We're
2: talking to Carol Rose from the ACLU. One more uh, voting rights case um, before we move on. The one in Indiana about purging voter registration. What's
13: that? Yeah, so this is a really scary case, and there's been a couple of them like this. Also, there was one in Ohio, um, having to do with purging voter uh, files. So what would happen is the... Uh, in an effort to actually suppress the vote, they would send out postcards to people and say, if you don't return this postcard in a certain amount of time, uh, then you're not going to be eligible to vote. And this was for people who hadn't voted. I think it was in two or three or four elections. Each state had different levels of that. So the ACLU filed a lawsuit to challenge this to say, no, you actually cannot use uh, the fact that somebody may not respond to a government postcard as a reason to t- take them off the voting rolls. If they've registered to vote, legitimately registered to vote, they should stay on the polls and not be taken off because they're not returning a government bureaucratic postcard.
2: What is the, the deal on that, that once
13: you register, you're there forever? Well, and yeah, I mean, so what, this, what Indiana was arguing was that actually they could just purge the voter okay. rolls. And, you know, and they invoke things like... Uh, you know, cleaning up the lists. And, you know. But if you ha-
2: say today you haven't mm-hmm. voted in Massachusetts, you haven't voted for 10 years or 15 years, and you're all excited about this primary, But and you did vote 20 years ago, are you still right.
13: there when you show up at the polls or, or what? You know, I don't know the answer, but we, I would know the answer if we had election day registration because then okay. you could show up to vote, and that's okay. exactly why we want to make sure people are able to do that. Marching. Can
1: we end where we began on same day registration? Mm-hmm. The only argument I've heard against it that I think for an average person would carry some weight is there's much greater potential for fraud if you're voting if you're registering and voting on election day you're you're making a face at me uh... what is the response to that that is face worthy i mean well
13: i mean i think we have really good systems of accountability we have amazing uh... election clerks and election workers in this state um, and i'm confident that combination of really great and dedicated people and really good technology and the third thing that may be missing and we need to do is resources to make sure that they have the yeah. systems behind it that are going to enable them to actually make sure we enable the most number of people to vote possible who have that right to vote and that we don't have to worry about election. Fraud. Have there been and any problems in do. the
1: 21 states that no. have
13: it? it's been it's been around for 40 years. And in but the 21 you, states, that have is long day. is it? 40 years. It's been around for 40 years. I okay. mean, it's really not even all that high tech, but it is good common sense, and we should do it here in Massachusetts.
2: Carol Rose, thank you very Great much. To see you. Thank Carol, you. thanks so much Carol for your time. Carol Rose is the executive director of the ACLU of Massachusetts. She joins us every month. Thanks again, Carol. Up next. A new documentary from the filmmaking trio Sarah Burns, Ken Burns, and David McMahon looks at how a sprawling public housing project in Atlanta grossly exacerbated poverty and segregation. That conversation is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Live from our studio at the Boston Public Library. I want to let you know back around 1 o'clock we're going to return to taking your calls and hearing from more candidates on Super Tuesday here and all across, well, most of the country anyway, 13 other states. Listen to 297 WGBH Boston Public Radio, live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. It is our uh, Election Super Tuesday special. We told you we would speak to all the candidates or key surrogates. We spoke to Corey Lewandowski, obviously senior aide to the president. Early on, we spoke to Senator Warren, to the deputy campaign manager for Bernie Sanders. At 1 o'clock, we'll speak to Congressman Lynch on behalf of Joe Biden. Ed Davis, former police commissioner, who is the Massachusetts chair for the Bloomberg campaign, and then Governor Weld, who was the challenger to uh, Donald Trump in the Massachusetts primary, will call in at roughly uh, 145. But we want to turn to an issue that has gotten far too little attention in the presidential race, housing. The filmmakers behind the brilliant Central Park Five have a new documentary that looks at the history of East Lake Meadows. It's a 1970-era public housing complex ...created at the edge of Atlanta. At first it seemed like the gateway to the American dream... ...but a mix of white flight, shoddy construction work... ...and a government that simply didn't care... ...East Lake Meadows disintegrated into a place... ...that people described as Little Vietnam. This is a film not just about the failures of public housing... ...in some cases, but about the strength of a community. East Lake Meadows, a public housing story... ...is by filmmakers Sarah Burns and David McMahon... ...with Ken Burns as the executive producer. It airs March 24th on PBS... And tonight at seven o'clock at MIT and GBH are hosting, pardon me, not at, is it at MIT tonight? At MIT, thanks Sarah. Are hosting a, with GBH, are hosting a preview and discussion to RSVP. And to learn more, please go to wgbh.org slash events. We're joined by filmmaker Sarah Burns and Asila Muhammad, a former resident of East Lake Meadows who appears in the film. Sarah and Asila, it's great to meet you both. Thanks so much for being here. Thank Thank you for
2: having us. So before we get to East Lake Meadows, your documentary congratulations this is this is you really learned so much in this um, you talk about public housing as it began and and dispel a lot of myths about public housing that started really uh, after the depression or even during the depression so so start there before we get to East Lake Meadows
14: yeah I mean the film is really focusing on the experiences of the residents of East Lake Meadows, and that's, that's the core of the film. But in order to understand those experiences, we felt like we had to go back and do some of this history and understand. And actually, Atlanta was the home to the first public housing project, federal public housing project in the country. That was Techwood Homes in Atlanta. And so that helps us understand these changes across the century. So when it started, it was during the Depression, and it was both a works program, right, trying to get people in construction, to build these places and a way to help people who had fallen out of the middle class. But what, I, and this is something I didn't fully understand before working on this, um, the, they tore down slums, right, what were considered slums in Atlanta in order to build Techwood homes. But those slums had been to a degree integrated and the federal government actually imposed segregation on this public housing. And so we were creating segregation in some cases where it hadn't been before. And so there were some housing projects built for African-Americans, but mostly this program benefited white people who were, um, sort of had just fallen out of the middle class. And it was intended to be something that would be a stepping stone back into the middle class. Um, and that was, and it, it did that for a time. But then things across the sort of middle of the century really changed.
2: But you also talk about the, uh, the racism involved in in people trying to get mortgages and get out of, of these housing projects. Uh, it was one thing if
14: you were white. It was another story if you were African-American. Because it was
1: intended to be transitional, no? Yeah.
14: Exactly. That was the original intent, and it did succeed for white people in doing that for a time. Um, and what happened was, as, as you mentioned, we we created this ladder up for white people through building suburbs, through building highways so you could get to the suburbs, and through federally guaranteeing loans for home mortgages. Um, But those were not accessible to black people.
1: So, Sarah Burns, tell us a little bit about the hopes in the early days of East Lake uh, Meadows. What was the goal, and what were the early years like?
14: yeah I mean Eastlake Meadows opened in one thousand nine hundred and seventy and at that time it was already sort of late in building public housing and it was already built at that time really to warehouse the poorest among us on the very far edge of the city so there were problems from the very beginning, but the reality is that it also was a hugely important backstop for people. it was providing incredibly important housing for people who were in need of that housing and so to a certain extent, there was hope for people who were moving in. This was the place that was keeping them from being homeless, that was keeping them from spending you know, 70% mm-hmm. of their income on housing, and that was a critical resource. But from the beginning, it had problems.
1: You know, it's from the beginning it had problems, and then fast forward a couple of decades, and we'll fill in some blanks. Asila, you moved in at East Lake Meadows in the early 1990s, and I have to say, while there are... A ton of incredibly moving moments in this documentary. This uh, couple of minutes from you describing your first day at East Lake Meadows really takes the cake. Here is Asila Muhammad.
4: The day we moved in was okay. It was a pretty day. Children were happy, um, until maybe hours later, we heard some gunshots and found out that someone had got killed right up under the steps what we had just moved into and it was rough trying to um, try to help them understand what had happened and that we would be okay.
1: And by the way, if people, when people see this, you're welling up as you're talking about, what did you say to your kids? How did you try to convince them that it would be okay? Um,
4: basically we did a prayer that day, um, And just to always hear about that and to think about it, it still brings sadness to you that they had to go through that because I would thought my children would never have to go through that. But for that day, I sat down with them. I explained to them that, um, one, you're not going to go outside and see a dead body. You're not. But we're going to make the best of it while we live here. And me and your dad is going to try to keep you safe as possible.
1: What were your hopes before that day, the movement? What were your hopes for East Lake Meadows for you and your family? What were you expecting or at least hoping it would be?
4: To actually give them a home, a roof over their head, someplace that we can be stable and wouldn't have to keep moving around all the time, um, to give them a sense of stability. That's mainly what it was about.
1: So, Sarah Burns, when did it start falling apart between the 70s and this early 90s, and why did it fall apart?
14: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few things that happened. There were problems really early on with the infrastructure. So there were, um, it was built, I think, shoddily in the first place, in part because it was only ever designed essentially to warehouse poor people. And so there wasn't as much attention to that. So there were... You know, the, the sewer system was backing up into people's apartments within the first couple of years. Um, and you also see a lack of services. So that's both in terms of helping people find jobs um, and in terms of the commercial, um, the businesses that might be around a neighborhood, but also in terms of policing. Um, and so you see crime start to happen more there because it's kind of isolated and apart from the city. And then you have drugs and in the beginning, in the mid-late '80s, you have a crack wave that hit in most cities, really, um, an epidemic, and that uh, particularly affected places like East Lake Meadows, where there wasn't that policing, and it was a little bit of a, a wild west. And so that became a kind of safe place for drug dealers to set up shop. They weren't necessarily coming from the neighborhood; they were coming to the neighborhood because that was a place where they could sell drugs.
2: We're talking to Sarah Burns and Asila Muhammad about this uh, transformation. Well, I don't know if that's even the right word, but about the East Lake Lake Meadows uh, housing project. Asila, you mentioned, you know, coming in and having that tragedy the first day you were there with your kids. Uh, Somebody else in the, uh, or several people in the documentary talk about, you know, roaches and trash and uh, grass not cut and even raw sewage. One guy talks, it's it was kind of funny, but it wasn't really funny. He talks about putting his bowl of cereal on the on the table and the roach is parachuting into the bowl of cereal. Then he decides you're going to eat from the cereal or flick the, the roach out or throw out the, the cereal. But I wonder how you... Um, that's sending a message to you and your kids, you know, when, when those kind of conditions are there. And I wonder as a mother, um, how you just manage this? How you manage you know, your kids going out after dark or, or your kids getting back and forth to school, your kids staying out of trouble? That's Hard. Um,
4: basically, while uh, we was there, a lot of the infestation station from the bugs and stuff we did not see. And I guess it's because according to how you kept your place. Yeah. Um. For as my children being out at nighttime, it was a rule. It started getting dark. The sun started setting. It's time to come in. Um. Basically, when they went outside, I was always out with them. Um, when I started working doing little odd jobs at East Lake, and I had to lead them home by themselves. You know, we had people that would watch out for them. But mainly, uh, the two of the girls was old enough to start making sure that the two younger girls was getting in the house okay. Um, but the main thing I had to worry about was my two older girls were starting to get involved with the drug dealers. Um, and that part... I couldn't have Because it, it,
2: dating, you mean, going out with these guys who it often would, were very, very attractive.
1: with or vi- being in the presence yeah. of, right? And all, but
2: often these guys were kind of the attractive guys that, that were kind of making money and had money to spend and all that kind of stuff. Yeah.
4: Well, what I found out later, <laughs> my husband had befriended some of those young guys to keep an eye out on my girls. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that the guys was hanging around my girls. And it was actually my husband keeping the girls protected from anyone that would cause harm to them. And, and know, another
2: thing, we, just sorry. real quick, another thing that that uh, you talked about in this was that you were isolated. This place was in the middle of nowhere, so there was no grocery store. So there was, I guess, there was this guy, Mister Bennett, who came around with some uh, Anthony's the mobile Anthony's rolling great. store, <laughs> the vegetables and the and stuff. Right. But basically, you know, doctor's appointments, daycares, all these places were far. Yes. So, you know. Was it like everybody trooped off on Saturday to go to the grocery store?
4: What happened? Um, mainly, that's what you had to do. You had to go almost, what, 10, maybe 10 or 15 minutes away from home, which was like 10 miles away from home. And usually you didn't have nobody to take you. You had to catch the bus. And I had my girls. We all called the bus on the weekends. We went to the grocery store, and we brought all our groceries back. You carried them? yes.
1: Uh, we're talking to uh, Asila uh, Muhammad, who lived in East Lake Meadows, and she's in this spectacular film. We're talking to one of the filmmakers, Sarah Burns. It's called East Lake Meadows: Public Housing Story. It airs on PBS on March 24th. I want to return to what you said, Sarah Burns, about the deterioration of this place. And what 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 I took one of the many things I took away from this is this one of my least favorite terms in the English language: the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And if you're not the deserving poor, which generally means you're people of color as opposed to white people, what that generally means is all of the problems that you describe are of your making. And if you're the deserving poor, the problems aren't all of your making, and we, the government, who's supposed to represent all of us, will help you fix it. Is that a fair summary of what we saw here?
14: Absolutely. I think that's exactly what happened. That we have. I mean, I think what we see in this film, and looking at the at the history as well, is that The conclusion that I've come to, at least, is that we have never, as a country, done a really good job of serving the people who need it the most when it comes to housing and serving them well. And so that initial public housing, Techwood, was doing a pretty good job. It was doing what it meant to do, but only for the so called deserving poor, these people who we decided, who the federal government decided were deserving of this help, and therefore we provided decent housing for them when public housing came to serve people of color, and the people who were the, the, at the lowest income levels, right, the poorest people, we did a bad job of it, and we blamed the people who lived there for, their, for those conditions.
1: Before we get back to the story itself, one of the things I loved about this film, and unfortunately the credits were so small I couldn't read who was responsible for this, <laughs> is every once in a while you go from real people, uh, like Asila, to these incredibly fabulous animations. Mm. What is that about? Who is that and why did you do that? And it, it was great. What, what was it, what was the thing in there?
14: Yeah, we worked with an illustrator named Molly Schwartz, an illustrator and animator. Fabulous. who did a beautiful job with these illustrations and, and animations, but the reason we did that was because so much of the film is about these the stories of the people who lived in East Lake Meadows. And you know, we do our research. We go out, we find footage and photographs to illustrate our story, but in this case, so many of the really critical stories were from people's memories, and they were not going to be moments where we had photographs and footage to depict those things. Not everyone had cameras and home movies in these moments, sometimes really difficult moments for people, um, and sometimes happy moments. and so. We didn't want to approximate those. We didn't want to just show some random kid who happens to be doing the thing Mm -hmm. we're describing. And so we decided that animation gave us this opportunity to really be inside people's memories. Well, one of
1: the uh, moments you animate uh, is of a woman who I wish I had met. Uh, I told you both when I met you a few minutes ago, I used to represent tenants when I was a kid in the South Bronx. Every place I ever represented in a rent strike or in a public housing authority had an Eva Davis. And here is a little sound from this legendary woman, uh, Eva Davis. This is an interview in 1973, followed by an East Lake Meadows resident, Tommy Moore, speaking about how Davis was the champion for the mole.
4: I've been doing a job that the welfare department should have been doing for the residents of East Lake Meadows. I've been getting clothes for the people. I've been using my personal money to help people with food in my community. I've been using my personal money to help organize a little league baseball team.
15: Politics didn't care about us. They didn't care. We had to have people like Eva Davis to
1: demand certain things to be done. Did you know her, Asila?
4: Actually, yes. Could
1: you describe her to us?
4: She was my mentor. Mm-hmm. She was my friend. She the one get got me to the point that I'm at today, um, speaking out, being, um, being a soundbite for people of color and of public housing, um, she one day came to me and asked me, "Did I want to be a part of the resident association?" Mm-hmm. And I said yes, and I was voted in as her VP. That lady went through a lot for us in East Lake Meadows. If you needed something or something wasn't being done, call Eva Davis, and it got done.
1: Why'd you do what you did?
4: Um basically because a lot of us wasn't being hurt. And it took somebody like her to get there. For us. Well,
2: there was one section, Asila, it, it talked about how when she was going up against the, the, some of these drug dealers, and they were mad about that, they firebombed her apartment, and uh, she
4: still didn't want to move. I mean, I would have been scared to death. That's what she said? You didn't kill me? You just made me stronger, and that's exactly what they did to her.
1: And by the way, her kids and her grandkids are in this film, which makes it, I mean, the whole deal is incredible. So Sarah uh, Burns, there was potentially some good news on the horizon after a vote led by Eva Davis where the tenants there vote roughly 3 to 1 to, yes, uh, the city can tear down this horrible thing they have created and construct something in its place uh, down the line Tell us about that and whether or not that lived up to the expectations.
14: Yeah, this was part of an early, this is one of the the first housing projects of this type that was torn down in a a process that's become common across the country of tearing down this traditional public housing and replacing it often with mixed income housing. And so East Lake Meadows, the residents actually really fought, led by Eva Davis, and Asila was part of this committee too, fought to have their voices heard in this process of what was going to happen. And and ultimately, it was torn down um, and replaced with mixed-income housing. And I think there was a lot of, you know, it's really complicated. This new place is called the Villages of Eastlake, and I think for a lot of people, it's been a great thing. Um, The crime rates have gone way down, the employment rates have gone way up. There's now a grocery store, there's a bank, there's businesses, there's a charter school there that serves its population, I think, really well, but it doesn't serve the same people. So only about 15% of the original residents came back to the new place. And that's been common. That's, I think, pretty much the national average in these kinds of things. So this is not specific to Eastlake necessarily. But they were promised
1: the right to return if they wanted it It's yes, part of the deal, were they not?
14: Yes, but many people chose not to come back, right? Asila took a Section 8 voucher mm-hmm. and moved somewhere else. And for some people, that was great. And for some people, that was not so great. And so it's, it's really complicated. But the reality is that In many cases, when we've built mixed income housing, we've replaced traditional public housing, we've essentially again created a place that serves not the neediest among us, but people who are closer to the middle class. And so we're doing a better job of it again in these places, but we're not necessarily creating decent, safe, good housing and resources and social services for the people who need it the most.
2: We're talking to Sarah Burns and Asila Muhammad, the new documentary which is going to premiere on uh, later this month is called uh, what's it called, Jim?
1: East Lake of Meadows. Thank you. A public housing story, March 24th. Thank you. On PBS. Yeah,
2: and there's going to be the thing at MIT tonight at seven o'clock talking about this. You know, one of the one of the my favorite moments, the Lightfoots were all related to this, Eva Davis, and there were a lot of the children and maybe grandchildren that were interviewed. And there was one great part where uh, you showed uh, people dancing around the kitchen, everybody was having a good time and one of the Lightfoot said, you know, you make your own fun. And what, that was one of the things that struck me too, that as is, is bad as things were there was a community. Moms could help out other moms and kids knew each other and stuff. So that was a good part, even if things were in
4: disrepair Asila. Tell That's me about great. that. Um, to make fun with me and my children, and um, it didn't I know it wasn't mentioned in the film, but um, the question was later on asked of how did I make my life in Eastlake. Um, it was one day that it snowed real bad in Atlanta, and we had got some real serious snow. And that day, um, my stepson had got sick, so my husband took him to the hospital. They couldn't make it back because of the snowstorm. So me and the girls, we decided we want to go outdoors and have a snowball fight. And we did. We had a good time. Then Atlanta police pulled up, and next thing I know, they threw a snowball at one of my daughters upside the head. And I was like, Oh, So it's like that. So they I, did. Yes. Why? And I took a snowball and threw it right back. At <laughs> And he said that was the only time you can get away with hitting a police officer. Oh, <laughs> a were they trying
2: story. to be jerks or were they no, trying to have fun? They was fun just the having fun. Oh, they were having with us. fun. Okay. It was
4: just fun. Okay, that's good. It was just fun, <laughs> and that was the most memorable moment in East Lake.
1: Yes. So, Sarah Burns. What, why'd you do this? What was it, what's the take? Of it? I mean, we all we all know we should know. Ben Carson, who is allegedly running housing, is talking about how I wrote down a quote this morning: "Poverty is a state of mind." Uh, uh, of course, he wants to uh, triple. He proposed tripling the share of people's rents, the, the share of their income that they contribute to their rent, because that'll make them more either deserving or self-sufficient, or it seems to me it'll make them unhoused. Is the bottom line. But what was the agenda here? What's what, what do you want people to go home with?
14: Yeah, I think um, it's a great question. It's true. I mean, as I said earlier, we've, I think, we've never done a good enough job of serving the people who need it the most. And I think that's I think the takeaway, I mean, we've also so often stigmatized the people who live in public housing by essentially blaming them for the difficult conditions they face. Mm-hmm. And and also the, the way that we've covered public housing, people who aren't, who haven't lived in public housing or have family or friends in public housing tend to see only these kind of, if it bleeds, it leads stories about it. It's about crime, it's about drugs, it's about these conditions. And what we wanted to do was make this a real thing for people who, who haven't experienced it, right? Like these people who live in public housing, people like Asila and her neighbors and her family are having a variety of experiences here. They're dealing with the same struggles that we all deal with about taking care of their kids, about finding a good job, um, and that what we should be talking about now with our public housing is how we can serve the people who need it and actually do a good job of it and as Nicole Hannah-Jones says in our film I think we could do it well we just haven't and we, we haven't had the will to do it but we can and I hope that that's what people take away and think about when it comes to our housing policy going forward Is that, Do
1: you share that? Is that what you're hoping people see take away from the film?
4: Yeah I'm hoping very well that that's what they take away but also at the same time for people to understand uh, people like me at the time I was young didn't graduate from school, didn't have money, didn't have family to depend on. I needed that help at that time. And they gave me that help. I had it. I had a roof for my children. I was able to feed my children. But after a certain period of time, you should want more. And it's not about letting the government be the one it. You need to dictate your life. And once they gave me that opportunity, I took it. I hand them their Section 8 back, and I never look back. If this day comes that I need public housing again, would I turn my back on it? No, because it will be a need and not something to say, oh, I can get over on the government. They're going to take care of me. No. My thing is, right now today, for anybody that's listening to this that lives in public housing, you can do it. I did it. You can do it. I know you looking at child care and all this. We need to stand up for ourselves. Government is not going to give it to you anymore.
2: You no. know, Asila, one last thing for me about this. How did you do it? You, 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 left, you left East Lake Meadows, you got into Section 8. How did things go? By out? the way,
1: you unfortunately did not see Aceela's face when you asked the question. She just took a deep breath, a small <laughs> sigh, and a smile. And then she's going to answer yeah. your question.
4: Um, what happened was I decided to take the section. It took me a while to find what I wanted. I know I didn't want to go to no other, no other public housing, I didn't want to go to no um, apartment complex that just didn't care. I wanted a house. I wanted to give my girls and them something better. I wanted to give them a better school to go to. So I took day in and day night getting out there trying to find that place. We did find a place. We found it in Gwinnett um, County in Atlanta. Uh, We also, the landlord that we had, he had his reservations about us moving there. But, and I let him know where I come from. He gave us that opportunity. The neighbors in that community welcomed us in. We didn't have no problems. My girls then went to one of the best schools in Gwinnett County. And, I mean, we made it there in Gwinnett County. And then I got my job at Kaiser Permanente in 1998. And from that day forward, once I got it, Section 8, I started paying more, and Section 8 started paying less. I said, why am I holding on to Section 8? I have the money. I can afford it now. Get it is to someone else that needs it more than I do.
1: You're amazing. Hey, before you go, Sarah Burns, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, and I think I speak for Marjorie, I'm not sure, I didn't see the Central Park Five until Ava DuVernay's thing came out, and then we immediately went back and watched, watched the it, piece yeah. you did. Which, by the way, if people have not seen it, meaning yours, uh, you've got to see this thing. Do you stay in touch with those men? How are they uh, uh, doing And by the way, these are, this, well, you should, th- this is up close and personal to use a horrible expression with four. Of the, is it four of the five? Yeah. Four of the five. five of well, uh, and, and it is just, it is otherworldly great, but it was 2015. almost released in 2012. 2012. Yeah. So it's almost a decade since. Yeah. Uh, how are, th- what's up with these guys? And by the way, the President has not backed off. Remember, we all remember he took a full-paid ad in the New York Times saying they should be executed, and even after they were completely exonerated, he has not changed his position on the criminality and the culpability of these uh, men who didn't do what they were sent to jail for. What's their What are their lives like?
14: Yeah, I mean, a lot has changed since then. When I first met them, I um, actually Met two of them, Kevin and Raymond, um, in the summer of two thousand and three, right after their convictions had been vacated before they were about to file a civil case against mm-hmm. the city of new york um, and I actually wrote my undergraduate thesis about this case so i 've been sort of telling that story for for almost a decade, really working on on that and um, as I got to know them better through first writing a book and then making this documentary, um, it was all throughout this, this period of this lawsuit going on, which went on for 10 years, I will say, under Michael Bloomberg's administration, where the city refused to settle the case and dug in their heels um, and, and made that as difficult as possible. Um, it took a new, a new mayor in New York for that case to finally settle. That was after our film came out. Um, their, their lawsuit finally settled in 2014, And so that was a big change for them, um, both in terms of having this compensation, their case settled for $41 million, but I think also, more importantly, having some closure to this civil case that was a kind of confirmation again for them. Um, And yes, I have kept in touch with them, and um, so I think that was one big change. But then also with Ava DuVernay's series, and I think that they have um, just the, the recognition of what they went through and their experiences um, I think has been really important to them, and they have now had, in the wake of this thing, which was seen by a huge number of people on Netflix, um, this opportunity for some of them at least who who want to do that to go out and do a lot of public speaking i mean we did We did some of that with our film when our film came out, and they often came out and shared it with us and spoke to audiences and I think that was really healing for them to have these experiences of being in a big crowd of people who are there to support them and kind of cheer them on. And I think that's happening even more so now, that that especially Yusef Salam and Raymond Santana, and also to some degree Kevin Richardson and Corey Wise have been out speaking. They go to campuses and they engage with students and with people and, and continue sharing their story and that's been a, a beautiful thing to see.
1: Well you told the story beautifully, you told this story beautifully and you were a wonderful part of the Cecilia. Thank it was you. great to meet you both. Thanks yeah. so much for yeah. thank friend. you
2: both very very much for coming in and congratulations. East Lake Meadows, a public housing story, is by filmmakers Sarah Burns and David McMahon with Ken Burns as the executive producer. It airs March 24th on PBS. But before that, tonight, at 7 o'clock at MIT, WGBH is hosting a preview of the documentary and a discussion to RSVP and learn more about it. Go to WGBH.org slash events. Thank you very much, Sarah Burns and Sela Muhammad, for coming in. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Coming up, we continue our Super Tuesday coverage. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. And this is our special Super Tuesday coverage. I would say our super Super Tuesday super coverage. Absolutely. We're talking to actually all six of the candidates who are on the ballot, or a chief surrogate. In a few minutes, we'll talk to Steve Lynch, Congressman Steve Lynch, who is a supporter of uh, and surrogate for uh, Vice President Biden. Ed Davis, former police commissioner, is running the campaign for Michael Bloomberg in Massachusetts. Earlier in the show, we talked to Corey Lewandowski. Senior uh, advisor to President Trump, we're going to talk to his opponent, former Governor Bill Weld, right after we talked to John King sometime in the last 15 minutes, but in the interim for the next few minutes until Congressman Lynch calls in. If you voted today, we'd love to hear from you. We had some callers earlier in the show. What was that one woman said, I woke up Bloomberg and I voted Biden? <laughs> we have In a, lot a matter of, people. of literally a yeah, couple hours. Yeah, she,
2: drove, she left home voting for one person. She drove to the voting poll, looking for, voting for another person. She gets in there to vote and votes for a third person. So Our number is 877-301-8970. I
1: just yep. want to
2: mention very quickly, sure. and we were just talking about East Lake Meadows in this uh, really great documentary, uh, and, and Sarah Burns has mentioned the fact that uh, Michael Bloomberg, we've heard a lot about stopping Frisk. We've heard much less about it's the fact that he refused to settle the Central Park Five case. And people may know Central Park Five case involved a, a young white woman woman who was uh, raped and very badly beaten. And they arrested these five young teenagers. And they were teenagers. They were like 14, yeah. 15 years old. Sarah Burns, and her father, did the incredible documentary. Uh, Ava and her husband did another too, yeah. uh, uh, Netflix thing on this. And the point is, they were Not guilty. They didn't do it. Somebody else did it. And they spent, what, 10 and 12 and 14 years in prison? they lost, basically, their youth. And the city of New York, under Michael Bloomberg, repeatedly refused to settle, even though these guys were wrongly uh, accused and 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 became these monsters in people's minds, and they were nothing of the sort. 877-301-8970.
1: 877-301-8970. In addition to seeing the East Lake Meadows thing when it's on the 24th, if you have not seen the Central Park 5, the Burns version, it's great. it is really it is must-see uh, viewing. 877 301 If you're in Massachusetts, the polls are open until 8 o'clock tonight, so you have seven hours to vote. Starting at 7 o'clock tonight, uh, we will bring you on the radio here an 89.7 wall-to-wall coverage of the results on what could be a fairly pivotal day. We said to you earlier that almost all the polling shows a huge bounce for Joe Biden after South Carolina and the endorsements of last night, such a bounce that just picking one state, Virginia a week ago in a poll, uh, Bernie Sanders was up nine points, uh, In the most recent results through this morning or through yesterday that lead has shifted 24 points. Uh, Joe Biden is up 15, but the question is, with so much early voting in each of the 14 uh, Super Tuesday states, except for Alabama, which doesn't have it, uh, is it too late for Joe Biden's surge to have an impact on the actual numbers? Nina and Waltham, you are next on Boston Public Radio. Thank you for calling in. Hi. Hi. I'm glad I got
9: through. I just wanted to say that I looked at my
5: ballot, and I've been around the three, four candidates, two of whom are gone. Finally, on Elizabeth because she deserves to win her state and she suffers from discrimination and she's a better Bernie than Bernie.
1: That, that's a good line.
5: <laughs> that's a very good line.
1: Hey, Nina, you're breaking up, so we have to uh, let you go. And we're also going to make a, another campaign stop. This one is with Congressman Stephen Lynch, and he is here making a pitch for his candidate, Vice President Joe Biden. Congressman, great to talk to you as always.
16: Good to be with you, Jim and Marjorie.
1: Yeah,
2: thank you very much, Congressman, for calling. So, tell us why you're with Joe Biden.
16: Oh, just solid, uh, reliable leadership. Uh, I think he's got the he he's got obviously got the experience necessary. I think he he covers all the all of the bases for us as as a presidential candidate. He'll he'll be great. I think that uh, not only have we suffered at home. Uh, domestically because of uh, President Trump's policies, but uh, there's been uh, terrible damage done to the U.S. brand and and to our country's reputation overseas. And I can think of no one, no one uh, on the Democratic side or Republican side who can repair that reputation as quickly and as convincingly as uh, President Joe Biden. You
2: know, Congressman, we've heard this several times today. We've heard it over the last weeks. A lot of people that like Joe Biden, I think everybody likes Joe Biden, are worried that he's lost his fastball, that he makes missteps, he's not going to be able to, if Donald Trump does debate, that he's not going to be able to stand up in a debate to Donald Trump. What, what you, what's your rejoinder to that?
16: Oh, no, no. He's in, he's in great shape. Uh, I know that sometimes he, he does get uh, flustered, but I don't think there's any candidate that doesn't have that uh, happen once in a while. Uh, you know, you think about his you know, steady leadership over many years, I, I think that uh, we, we need that right now. We need a return to normalcy, uh, we need a steady hand, and I think uh, he'll provide that.
1: You know, uh, uh, Stephen Lynch, Congressman uh, uh, Lynch, we, I'm sure you've seen the same numbers we have, uh, some huge shifts in uh, polling in some of the 14 states today, many of the 14 states, after the South Carolina thumping for Joe Biden. And obviously, he's won some major endorsements in places like Virginia with the former governor, McAuliffe. And obviously, last night was a big night. But we were talking to the head of the Civil Liberties Union before about early voting, which people like me, I used to rave about in the most positive way but then you see that a lot of people have voted before they had an opportunity to get the most update information on any of the candidates, in your case, Biden's surge of the last few days. Do you worry that so many people voted early that what appears in these new polls will not be reflected in the uh, election results tonight,
16: if you know what I mean? There's, there is worry. I, just did, I did get an email from the campaign, from the Biden campaign, about informing people of their opportunity to to uh, to ask for an absentee ballot in order to vote for Joe, but I, I don't know if that'll be enough. I, I I do know personally that people are in that position. My daughter, who's in uh, college down in North Carolina, was a Pete Buttigieg uh, uh, supporter. She voted for him, and uh, you know Biden was her second choice. So she's trying to uh, you know get one of those absentee ballots and and uh, change her vote, uh, but. You know, it's it's what we got to deal with. Hopefully, it won't out, it won't change the outcome.
1: Are you? Is it fair to describe you as uh, part of sort of a, the moderate wing of the Democratic Party, or do you take offense? Oh yeah, yeah Okay, yeah, I know. Yeah, I assumed yeah, you did. Absolutely. So, uh, with assuming this comes down, we, again, we don't know a lot until later tonight. If this ends up being a Bi- Biden-Sanders race, it seems a lot of people have. Uh, uh, Wrap their arms around your guy because they're worried that a self-described democratic socialist can't uh, win, can't beat Donald Trump. And the flip side is a lot of people who are part of this incredible Sanders movement, and I hope you acknowledge how incredible it is, even if he's not your candidate, if they feel that the democratic establishment, whatever that means... Ends up taking away, you know, snatching victory out of Sanders' hands if he doesn't have 1,991 delegates, even if he's leading going into the convention, will not vote for uh, Joe Biden, let's say. Do you worry about that divide, or is this just sort of normal politics in the Democratic Party?
16: No, I, I, this is new and different. This is new and different, uh, Jim. Uh, I worry about it. I, I worry Mm -hmm. that it might reflect a deeper division within our party. Uh, We really, one Democratic Party now, uh, because the differences are so clearly defined, and, and the differences are, are somewhat more profound than they've ever been. Uh, and, you know, others have said they, they wish the socialists had their own party. Uh, and, and, and the sort of uh, traditional Democrats, the moderates, had their own party. So, Do you say party- that
1: way? When you say some have said, have you said that?
16: I believe part of it is true. Yeah, I believe there is uh, there is a deep divide in the Democratic Party today. Um, there's probably a similar divide in the, the Republican Party, but it's uh, you know it's being masked over right now by by, by Trump. But uh, and, and he's forced you know forced cohesiveness on their side. You'd in vote ours, for Sa-
1: you'd vote for Sanders if he was the nominee, I assume, uh, Congressman Lynch. Yes. If it's against Trump. Yeah.
16: yeah. I got no choice. Of course okay.
1: I
2: got. <laughs> okay. yeah. Congressman, do you have any idea why that... I
16: would, that you're talking about vote, right? Yeah,
1: yeah or, well, no. Uh, it sounds like you're trying to uh, parse my words. Would you support Bernie Sanders if he was the nominee, not just vote for him?
16: Against Trump? Yeah.
1: Okay.
2: Yeah. okay. okay. Uh, can, we're talking with Congressman Stephen Lynch. Congressman um, uh, Marty Walsh, we, we thought he'd be endorsing by now. We thought he'd be endorsing Joe Biden. Any idea why he hasn't?
16: I don't know. I know he's, uh, you know, he's his people have been in Iowa. I, I was there in Iowa. There were a lot of uh, Marty Walsh people there. So uh, maybe they went on their own or at his instruction. I, You know, we were doing every other week up in New Hampshire, and there were a lot of Marty Walsh people up there working for Biden in New Hampshire as well. So uh, he certainly wasn't stopping anybody from, you know, in his circle or his okay. campaign from, from helping Biden. You know? <laughs> maybe
1: you want to give your friend a call. You know, that's yeah. a, just a suggestion. Well, I, don't know. I don't know if
2: Marty Walsh is the same kind of boss as Mayor Menino, but I think if... Uh, I think with Tom Tommenino, you know, if you were out campaigning for somebody he didn't want, you'd, you'd hear about you it on it, Monday yeah, exactly. morning. And I think, I think Marty yeah. Walsh is the same way, Congressman.
1: I think so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Congressman. Okay. We really appreciate your taking right. the time to call in. Good luck uh, Thank today. Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much. Yeah, Thank we appreciate the day. time. Thank you, okay. Congressman. That's the voice of Congressman Stephen Lynch, who represents the Eighth Congressional District, and he's supporting Vice President Joe Biden.
1: So why don't we move to the guy who spent five hundred million dollars plus earlier today? We spoke to Ed Davis. You obviously know him. He's the former Police Commissioner of Boston, and his current capacity, amongst others, is he is the chair. Of Bloomberg for president in uh, Massachusetts. Here's Ed Davis. So Michael Bloomberg has blanketed the airwaves with a half a billion dollars in ads. He's paying social media influencers to spread his message to millions of followers. And in just a couple of months, he's ascended to near front-runner status. And yet today's the first day he's actually on the ballot. Join us on line to explain why Bloomberg's got his vote is former Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis. Ed is now running Bloomberg's operation in Massachusetts. Ed Davis, great to talk to you. Thanks for calling in.
17: Good morning. Great to
2: talk to you, too. Hello, Ed Davis. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Before we begin, I have to say that the campaign of uh, Mr. Bloomberg has taken over a lot of parking spots in Brookline. (laughs) (laughs) He's got an office near there. So, you know, if things don't go well today, maybe we'll get some more parking spaces back. But you're here to represent him, so give us your pitch. Why are you with uh, Michael Bloomberg, Ed Davis?
17: Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, Michael supports causes that, are, that I'm passionate about. He has uh, donated hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to, um, to issues that, that really matter. Uh, he's still very much involved in his uh, hometown of Medford, where he grew up in a, in a blue-collar uh, community. And um, I, I had a chance over the last few days to meet people that he grew up with that he's still in touch with. He, he didn't forget where he, where he came from. Uh, but mostly I think that our real goal here is to make a change in the White House. And you're going to need somebody that can go one-on-one with Donald Trump. And I think Michael Bloomberg is the only one in the field that can do that. He's a, he's a, uh, a tenacious, tough, smart individual who knows Trump intimately. He he's been in the same community with him for uh, decades. And, uh, when Trump comes out swinging at Michael Bloomberg, uh, he's going to get a surprise because Mike's the kind of guy that can go back at him. So, if we want real change in the, in uh, January, we we really uh, we really need to support support someone who can get that done.
1: You know, Ed Ed Davis. When I've seen a few of Mike Bloomberg's commercials of late talking about managerial experience when i heard him i don't know if it was on a town hall or wherever it was the last couple of nights criticizing joe biden as a legislator as opposed to a manager what i'm reminded of and i'm guessing you may be too is the infamous line from michael dukakis i think in atlanta in uh, 1988 this election isn't about ideology it's about competence is that a core message for your guy as well in 2020
17: I think it is. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I think that in this particular issue, the ability to get things done, which is which is really Michael's tagline, uh, is is critical in, 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 at this point in time in this country after what we've been through. So um, using someone that has the practical experience of running a huge metropolis like New York City, uh, he knows where the levers are in government. He knows how to accomplish things and to help people uh which he which he has exhibited uh a hundred different ways in his time in new york city you know i gotta tell you 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 both knew memanino very well and yep. we did. I, was honored to, I was honored to be part of of his cabinet and uh, we we would often have conversations about the importance someday of having a mayor of a big city uh, become president because of their knowledge of the community. And their ability to get things done. And Mayor Menino was very close to Michael Bloomberg, and I can see that. We're right on the cusp of that, and it makes me very, very excited.
2: You know, Ed Ed Davis, you were the longtime commissioner in Boston here. You've been a police officer for most of your adult life, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong about that, but right? You've been a cop for.
17: Yeah, that's what I thought. So
2: (laughs) you're the the, okay. So you're the perfect person to ask about this. You know that the mayor, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, has taken some criticism about the stop and frisk policy that was used by police departments around the country a certain period of time, and the New York City Police Department as well. He apologized for it, said he stopped it, but in fact, a a court uh, stopped him, stopped it. He didn't stop it. So, what's your rejoinder to that?
17: Well, you know, that's something I lived in. In 2006, when I took over the Boston Police Department, uh, the number of uh, stops, uh, they called them field field interrogation cards, had been going up every year before I I took over. And when I signed on, I thought that was a good thing, because people were getting murdered in, in neighborhoods like Dorchester and Roxbury, and people were begging us, the residents of those neighborhoods were begging us to do something to stop it. So... We would do that. We, we would stop as many people as we could, and we would check them to see if they had guns. We thought that was the right thing to do. But I remember going to a community meeting in Mission Hill. Um, there were probably 150 young black uh, males in, in the room. And uh, we get into a conversation, and they were furious about being stopped. They said, every time we try to walk to the basketball court, every time we go here or there, the, the 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 cops are jumping out of the car and it was mostly the gang unit at the time so and and I, I inquired about this i had conversations with the community about it that year 2007 we started to ratchet down the number of field interrogation stops and i had a i had a very contentious meeting with the gang unit at the time when I, when i said listen this isn't about getting guns off the street it's about connecting with the community they thought i had gone crazy but but in in the final analysis boston like like new york eventually learned that that strategy was bad michael knows that now he's apologized for it and and i can see him using that information to help the relationship between police and the community uh from the position that that hopefully he'll go into
1: Just two last things from me, Ed Davis. I can't think of a situation where the first day a candidate is on the ballot has potential to be the last day or a springboard. This is a make-or-break day, Uh, first time people outside of New York have had a chance to vote for your guy. This is a make-or-break day for him, is it not?
17: We are definitely cutting new territory in this strategy. Um, I I can't say this will be a make-or-break day at this point. But at the end of today, um, we will see if uh, the idea uh, that that jumping into this on Super Tuesday is a viable way to get elected. uh, It's certainly uh, something that he has dedicated every bit of resource that he has uh, to getting done. And uh, I have, I, I'm very optimistic about it
1: today. Well, not every bit of he re- has a few resources left, Ed Davis. <laughs> I think we can say so. And before you go on a, on a, to- well, not that the presidential election's on a serious note, uh, it's uh, March 3rd. The marathon is April 20th. If you were still the commissioner of uh, the police in Boston, would you be recommending to your boss that there be or not be a million people on the street on Marathon
17: Monday? Uh, in light of the coronavirus? Yeah, virus, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's all right. Um, you, you know, uh, I talk to Willie Gross uh, mm-hmm. a lot. He's a tremendous leader in the police department. Uh, the mayor has advice from public health officials, from uh, a variety of uh, people up and down the chain of command, from the feds right down to the local health health commission. Um, I think you have to be reasonable about this. It's important to wash your hands It's important to give distance to people. Uh, if you see somebody that that looks like they're not feeling well, give them, you know, some space, but I don't think we should panic at this point in time. So, uh, I I would, I would listen to the advice that, that, uh, that the city officials are getting and abide by that, that advice. It changes every day, but I I don't think it's like terrorism. You can't let the fear of terrorism stop you, uh, from, from living your life. And, uh, as long as it's reasonable, I think we can get out there. Ed Davis, good to talk yes. to you. Good luck today.
2: <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Ed Davis. That. Yeah, good luck to uh, you, too, to as well. Appreciate the time. Ed Davis is the former Boston Police Commissioner. He is now running Michael Blen- uh, Bloomberg excuse me, campaign operation in Massachusetts. Thanks again to Ed Davis.
1: That was Ed Davis. We have one more of the six candidates to go. Bill Weld himself will be calling us. He's obviously challenging the president here in Massachusetts and beyond. Governor Weld will call us somewhere in the 145 range after we speak to John King. Peter on Route 3. I don't know if you're still on Route 3 in Plymouth. Welcome to the show. Hi.
12: Hi. I'm still on Route 3, but uh, close to Norwell now.
1: Okay. Well, Anyways, good to uh, talk to you. What's up?
12: Yeah, great. Great to be here. Thank you. Um, you were earlier talking about voter suppression, and mm-hmm. uh, there's a great documentary by Greg Palast. I don't know if you've seen it.
1: Nope. It's called no. uh,
12: Best, Best Democracy, Money Can Buy. Mm-hmm. And It goes over how uh, Chris Kobach, of all people, was doing cross-check, which pushed off about uh, a few million people off the voting registration in the 2016. The movie's Pro- great. You should check
1: it out. We will check it out. And Second, thanks, thanks for telling Before you go away, Chris Kobach, for those who don't know, is the guy we discussed with Kyle Rose, who was yeah. the former Secretary of State in Kansas, who was appointed to lead uh, Donald Trump's voter fraud commission or whatever. Right. And they ultimately dissolved because there is very little voter fraud in this country. Peter, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay.
12: Second, I, uh, I just finished my voting down in Sandwich. Who'd you vote for? I voted for Bernie. Why is that? Well, you know, let's face it. Since I'd say Clinton, Clinton was the the best Republican the Democrats ever put into office. You know, he deregulated. He was hard on crime. We haven't anybody really representing the working class since then, or before that. So, you know, Bernie is out there. He's really representing the working class, and uh, he's not taking money from uh, the billionaires or super PACs and, uh, So he's not owned by anybody. Peter, would you, Peter,
1: before you go away though, uh, you left out a president, a Democratic president in between. I assume you think that Obama didn't represent the working class either?
12: Well, let's face it, when Obama was up there, I mean, he was going to, he did all right. I mean, you know, as far as the uh, 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 Obamacare or Affordable Care Act. That's a pretty big deal, yeah. Yeah, what what, what it was. But however, when it came to even discussing, uh, universal health care, he wouldn't even discuss it. It was taken off the table at the very beginning.
1: Well, you mean a public yeah. option. And he,
2: also, well, he, thought he, could, he yeah. also didn't go after the Wall Street people, Peter, remember? I mean, I think That's that was right. one of Absolutely. his biggest mistakes. He let those guys, yeah, they're mostly all one. guys, and, walk.
12: And that, Peter? You know, part of the problem is, is that they, you know, all, everyone who takes the money from these guys knows by them. You know, they, they, have to, they have to dance to the music at some point.
1: Well, I agree that he didn't go after the Wall Street people. I'm not, I would not subscribe to the notion that he was bought off, but the fact remains they were not prosecuted except for that, in that great documentary, Abacus, the yeah. uh, Chinese-American-owned bank in Obama Chinatown, New York. brought in Wall Street Thanks, people Peter. to run things like the Treasury no, and it's that kind of point. stuff.
2: I, I don't think he did. That was Lloyd well,
1: Blankfein was at his first uh, state, uh, yeah. state dinner. He's Goldman sachs up. He was. In any case, uh, uh, we're taking a break. Are okay. you going to say John King's coming We're out? taking a
2: break. That's right. Up next, we're going to talk to CNN's John King about everything that's going on on Election Day. To give, his, give us his expert Super Tuesday predictions. Keep your dial on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio, live from the WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library.
1: Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie again live from our GBH studio at the Boston Public Library. If you had to pick one person in America, Marjorie, to talk to in the middle of Super Tuesday. We got him. We got him. him. (laughs) CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 8 and weekdays at noon, would be John King. And he joins us now. Hey there, John.
18: I thought you were going to say Mookie Betts for you know, Tuesday State. Well, other than him,
1: you're at least number two in our book.
2: Okay. Uh, you guys at CNN have been reporting all day. Other people have, too, that, uh, that uh, Biden, Joe Biden, uh, has gotten a big bounce uh, ahead of Super Tuesday, but there's also the factor of the early voting. So what, what do we think is going to happen today, John?
18: You know the best part of big election days is we don't know and we get to count votes and people get to vote but look we have had the most remarkable i can't find the right word for it 48 hours in this race in the sense that after a pretty horrible start in the first three states joe biden got second in nevada i guess that's not horrible but it wasn't great Uh, he gets this giant win in south carolina 30 points no one anticipated a blowout like that a biden win is not a surprise it was a blowout that was a surprise and now you have this rally around Biden where you get Buttigieg, you get Klobuchar, you get Beto O'Rourke. Watch there's more coming uh, even today. And, and so can he translate that? And can he, he didn't have the money to be up on the air in these Super Tuesday states beforehand. Even though he's raised some money since South Carolina, you can't, get it on, you know, you can't channel it fast enough to get on. He did a very modest ad buy in Minnesota today with an Amy Klobuchar ad, for example. That's smart. That's nimble. Uh, but a lot of people have early voted, as you uh, note. Uh, and you can't... How quickly can you take advantage of this momentum? I will tell you this. The Biden people think they're going to do better in Texas today. Um, you know, As you move west... If you start in the east, number one, in your state, Elizabeth Warren has to prove herself. She has to win at home or else she's going to have to have a tough conversation with herself. Um, You know, you have Vermont in the northeast as well and then Maine. Um, Then you come down to southern states. Biden has to do well in the Virginias, the North Carolinas, the Alabamas, the Tennessees, the places where you have a significant African-American vote. He just must do well in those states. Bernie Sanders is counting because he's worked so hard on this, from 2016 straight through this time on the Latino vote, which is giant in Texas and giant in California. Um, California obviously is the biggest prize. So I, I want to watch everywhere. I, I think the competition for Texas, if the Biden people can be more competitive as they think, uh, could change the dynamics a bit tonight. I don't think there's anybody who does who would disagree with this statement that, by all accounts, by all expectations going in, and we'll count the actual votes. Sanders is likely to wake up tomorrow with a decent delegate lead. The question is, is it big, big decent? Is it just modest decent? Um, that's the math we'll be doing on the next day. But and I, part of the question of that is how much natural momentum did Joe Biden get out of this big South Carolina win and then the you know, rally around Joe?
1: So, John, you said a minute ago, John King, that if Elizabeth Warren doesn't win her home state and the most recent polls have it essentially in a dead heat, with uh, statistical dead heat with Bernie Sanders, she's got to do some serious uh, introspection. Does uh, the guy who spent $500 million in counting so far need to do, well, he does need to do some introspection depending on how he does tonight, the first day anyone outside of New York City has ever been able to vote for him. What is the threshold that you think Bloomberg has to reach to be a credible candidate in his own mind after today?
18: That's a tough one. Uh, let's start with Bloomberg, and then I'll come back to Senator Warren, in the sense that, so you're Michael Bloomberg, and as of now, you don't think you're going to win any, anywhere. You waited. You sat out the first four contests, and you said you were going to wait till Super Tuesday, and you have spent a boatload of money, hundreds of millions of dollars in these states, uh, and saying that this is when you're going to essentially announce your presence as a serious Democratic mm-hmm. contender. Well, if you win nowhere, how serious are you? Uh, and then the question is, how many delegates do you get? There's a, my big question here is, does he reach viability? Does he get 15% in enough of these states to at least get some delegates? And can he get higher than that? And can he not only get 15% statewide, can he start, you know, either winning or being very competitive in some of these congressional districts? 169 congressional districts are on the ballot tonight too. You have to think of it that way, not just 14 states. Uh, because the d- way the Democrats award their delegates, you get some statewide, the rest mm-hmm. come by congressional district. Is he competitive? Has he smartly organized enough to surprise us in some congressional districts? He said today in Florida his only path to being the nominee is at a contested convention, that he understands the math is already in that direction. Help me out here. We're at a Democratic convention in Milwaukee that's brokered because nobody has a majority, but about a thir- at least a third of the people there are Bernie Sanders delegates. They're going to turn to Michael Bloomberg? Yeah. Help me with that math. That is, uh, I don't want to ramble on here, but that is the flip side of that is Senator Warren's position that she probably can't, she can't win outright either. But if she keeps winning, if she starts winning, she only has eight delegates right now. So she has a lot to prove today. But if she gets a credible, whatever that number is, amount of delegates, and there's a contested convention, that she is the candidate who can bridge the Biden and the Sanders camps. There's some truth to that. Uh, Sanders would be an appealing candidate. I mean, Warren would be an appealing candidate to Sanders voters, Sanders delegates, and she has appealed to some of, more to the middle, if you will. So she has a more reasonable case to make that a convention could turn to her, but not if you don't have delegates. You need power to be part of that conversation. So she has to come away from today with delegates or else I think they have to have a tough conversation, especially her campaign is very top-heavy. They invested heavily in a big staff, and they spread out. So she burns through a lot of money paying her staff. And so if you don't, if you don't prove that that's worth it, you don't start to perform, it's tough.
2: You know, John, came Are you about state- to leave
1: Bloomberg because I have one more Bloomberg question? Are you? Oh, go ahead with Bloomberg. Last then. Bloomberg question. Assuming he doesn't win anything today, and assuming Biden does well at least in the southern states and is a credible second, let's say, in Texas and those sort of things, if this was a rational business, politics, as opposed to an emotional, ego-driven business, what would Michael Bloomberg say if he were to ask BS tonight, why are you not just endorsing Joe Biden, whose politics are not unlike yours? We understand your line of late has been he, all he is is a legislator, not a manager, but his politics are not unlike yours. What would his response be, John King?
18: I actually believe that we will get to that point, Jim, in the sense that his ego... Uh, yes, you want to be the next president of the United States, but you also don't like losing, do you? People mm-hmm. with big egos don't like losing. Uh, and um, and so, you know, I, I always say give grace to people who run for president because being in the arena is very hard. And totally so these days are the These days are the toughest when you have, whether it's your own money or money you've raised and people who have supported you um, who want you to hang in there, th- these are very difficult days. So let's see how the votes turn out. But I, Bloomberg is on the record saying that if he does not have a path, that he will get out and help the Democrat yeah. and use his money and use the Offices he's put up all across the country to help that Democrat. I think if he has a, you know, a very disappointing performance tonight and Biden has another reasonably strong or strong showing that Bloomberg will come to that conclusion and come to it pretty quickly. Last thing on him. Um, what,
1: what is the state when we're watching you tonight? What's the state that we should be most closely watching, which in your estimation is the greatest chance for Bloomberg to pick one off?
18: I don't see a win for Bloomberg out no. there. I really don't. I would watch Arkansas and I would watch California okay. in the sense that uh, places, one, one small, one large, where he has spent money hoping to make a point. Uh, that, one more quick thing on him, it's just the psychology. Politics is also about psychology. The whole premise of the Bloomberg campaign was Joe Biden is weak, therefore you right. need me. He's on the ballot for the first time days after Joe Biden wins a state by 30 points. Yeah. Uh, Biden does not look weak at this moment. We can have a longer-term conversation if you want, but just when Michael Bloomberg needs you to turn to him, Joe Biden is as strong as he has ever been in this race. It's just counterintuitive.
2: You know, a couple of quick things from me, John, came from CNN. First of all, we don't know how many people have voted early, right?
18: No, we don't know the total numbers. We know there are more than 3 million ballots requested by Democrats in six Of the 14 states. 13 of the 14 states have early voting or in-person absentee voting, so a form of early voting. Only Alabama has none. We don't have a good scope, and one of the great reporters who comes on my show, Laura Buron Lopez from Politico, uh, says her reporting in California is a lot of people who requested ballots never returned them, that they held
2: them, because
18: they've been having such a hard time picking a candidate. So we don't know the exact numbers, but we do know we do know a decent amount of people, a decent amount of people have already voted, so maybe some of them, you know, I've already voted for Sanders or Biden, but maybe some of them have voted for Buttigieg or Klobuchar, yeah. and you can't get those back.
2: And we we also keep hearing over and over again, and you read this anecdotally, too, that a, a lot of people that are very passionate about Bernie Sanders say they're not going to vote for Joe Biden. What's the consensus on that kind of thinking?
18: I, I Look, I think – You know, we're getting the cart's a little ahead of the horse here, but in the sense that I think it really depends, Marjorie, on number one, what is the final delegate count, and number two, is there any evidence that, like, you know, in 2016, the Democratic National Committee put its thumb on the scale. That's just a fact to help Hillary Clinton. Um, If there's no evidence of that this time, and we get to a convention, and either Joe Biden has more delegates than Bernie Sanders, or is modestly behind Bernie Sanders, but but the other delegates then come to his aid. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. One difference from 2016 is that Bernie and Biden, Senator Sanders, I should say, I should be respectful, Senator Sanders and Vice President Biden are friends. They actually get along very well. They're different, but they get along very well from their time in the Senate together. And there's there's actually a relationship there. What's different from 2016, though, is this time Senator Sanders can taste it. Uh, and that—that's hard for a politician. He can see it. He can see a path to the nomination in 2016. I, I, you know, forgive me, but early on, he was as surprised as anyone. He was so competitive. He knew he would be competitive, but the fact that he emerged as so competitive against Secretary Clinton was a surprise to him too. And—and uh, and there was never a—you know, there there was. It was later in the campaign, I think, that he thought, "Whoa, I came pretty close here." This time, he sees himself as someone who can win the nomination. So the psychology of that's going to be harder. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I think in. in I think the first thing we have to watch is how close is the delegate count and who's on top and then just watch the relationship as this goes on. This is not going to end tonight. The question tonight is does someone, and Sanders is most likely to be that someone, open up a sizable delegate lead? How big is it? And then we have, you know, then does, that, does the field, the rest of the field clear? And then we have the next two Tuesdays. And at the end of March, when 60 plus percent of the delegates will have been decided, uh, this will be a very interesting conversation.
1: You know, John, I have one last thing for you about the, 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 the role of Coronavirus plays in this. Obviously, Bloomberg is doing ads about managing uh, New York City post 9-11. Donald Trump doesn't know what he's doing. It's pretty obvious to me, for a whole variety of reasons, that Trump is worried about the effect this has on the economy, the effect this has on people seeing him as leadership. And the ultimate proof, we played this sound about an hour or two ago for Corey Lewandowski. It is so irresponsible and insane. This is Don Jr. on Fox on Fox and Friends on Friday, accusing Democrats of politicizing the coronavirus. Here's uh, Donald Trump Jr.
3: For them to try to take a pandemic and seemingly hope that it comes here and kills millions of people so that they could end Donald Trump's streak of winning is a new level of sickness. You know, I don't know if this is coronavirus or Trump derangement syndrome, but these people are infected badly.
1: By the way, Lewandowski wouldn't even defend that. He basically said, you know, people get emotional, people attack his father, that, that sort of thing. But that's further evidence to me that his father is nervous about how this thing Plays out. How nervous is the White House about coronavirus and the impact that it has, both as a public health matter and as an economic matter, on Trump's reelection?
18: Uh, you see it in the sensitivity to any criticism of how they've handled the response. The president says they've been perfect. And um, I want to give the vice president some credit, actually. Once they put the vice president in charge, uh, the president continues to sort of minimize the virus and continues to say things that the experts then have to come out and correct, like how fast can you develop a vaccine? vaccine, uh, Or is it inevitable that there will be community spread? The answer is yes, and uh, to the vaccine question, about a year and a half, not, you know, very quickly, as the president likes to suggest. Uh, The vice president has actually, to his credit, and talked to Democratic governors about this, um, started to, you know, they, they, they might have had wobbly legs at the beginning, uh, but they're starting to coordinate better. They're starting to talk to people. Their legislative staff has done a good job on Capitol Hill. And by the end of the day today, you should see an agreement to spend about $7.5 billion on the emergency response plan. It's a long way to go. They have a lot to do. Uh, but of course they're worried. And then they saw uh, economic, you know, I think they do have their sea legs right now. But of course they're worried about, A, just If the country is anxious and nervous in a presidential year, you know, he's an incumbent. That makes it hard for an incumbent. Then you have the economic impact, which is going to go on for months. The Federal Reserve did him a favor today, an emergency rate cut, trying to do everything it can to help, and the president said it wasn't good enough and he wants more. That tells you how nervous he is. He gets exactly what he wants from the Federal Reserve, and he says it's not enough.
2: You know, John King, one last thing from from, uh, uh, me. I wonder, you know, I saw uh, Joe Biden on one of your town halls, uh, and Jim did too, and we both the Oh, the, have the thing same. with the
1: pastor. Yeah, I mean was he was he he's he's in South Carolina.
2: He's really uh, good, as I think, as a retail politician. I heard one of my favorite podcasts this morning from the New York Times the Daily. They had a thing on Joe Biden again, talking about how you know the likability factor is huge um, with him. You know, he's not been great in the debates, obviously, and a lot of people worry that he's kind of lost his fastball. But are we underestimating the likability factor of 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 Joe Biden, you know, assuming he prevails and how he might stand up against Trump?
18: Well, you should not underestimate that in the sense that he is a very likable person. There are questions about his fastball. You're right. But in terms of who he is, um, he he has a... Look, the the losses in his life. He lost his wife and young children. Then then 30 years later, 40 years later, he loses his son. Uh, Forget losing elections. The losses he has had in his life have had a profound effect on who he is as a human being and he is an incredibly compassionate and he has you see the empathy and so when he's in these moments there's no question that his own experience has shaped him and allows him to relate to people who are struggling Uh, His son, Hunter, who will be controversial in this campaign because of his Ukraine work, you know, it was also, you know, it's had an addiction problem, an addiction problem. So he can go into a a room in an opioid place and and immediately connect to families because he gets the pain. He can go into a place where they've had a mass shooting and lost loved ones in a shocking moment, sudden and shocking, and he can relate to that. Uh, That is a, it's a wrong word to use, but it is a gift politically, if you will, sometimes. That sounds crass. I don't mean it to, Um, that he can go into a room and relate to people, and sure, that that's a great asset. Now, sometimes, sometimes he has these amazing stories about life, and sometimes he fails to connect them to why that, you know, here's, and this is how that will shape how I govern, or this is how it affects why I view this issue that way. Uh, when he makes the connection, it's pretty powerful. It, it's pretty powerful. And so, uh, look, he, he's not a perfect candidate, but he has been, I think, underestimated. He is. a lot of people early on wrote him off, and he is, if anything, he is resilient, And he's tough. And now he's going to face a big test now that he has some rally around the vice president moment happening right now. Can he take maximum Mm -hmm. advantage And the next 10 days to two weeks are going to tell us the answer to that?
1: By the way, the exchange, if people haven't seen it, I'm sure it's on the CNN site, is between at this town hall last week in South Carolina, is between Vice President Biden and a pastor whose wife was killed in the uh, church killing at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, and it is as moving, whether you're a Biden fan or not, as a political or a personal exchange, is, John, we are so glad you're there tonight. We'll be glued. Yeah. If you can pull your left ear to say hello to Marjorie (laughs) and your right ear to say hello to me, we would much appreciate it. Yeah, I hope you're not up too late, John. (laughs) deal is done, and I'll have an espresso each hour. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll be Thank watching, you so John. much. Thanks, John King.
2: CNN's chief national correspondent, John King, joins us every week. He's the anchor of Inside Politics, which you can catch Sunday mornings at 8 and weekdays at noon. John King, thanks again. Coming up, we continue our informal Super Tuesday exit poll. We're also going to talk to the former governor of Massachusetts, Bill Weld, who, of course, is running on the Republican side against Donald Trump. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, live from our WGBH studio at the Boston Public
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brody and Marjorie Egan. We're taking your calls on all things Super Tuesday. We're live at the GBH studio, the Boston Public Library, 877 301 8970. We have about a quarter hour left to go. We expect to be joined by Governor Weld, who's on the uh, Republican ticket, needless to say, challenging the president here in Massachusetts. You have till 8 o'clock, if you haven't voted, till 8 o'clock, 6 hours and 20 minutes till the polls close here. So we would urge you, if you haven't, to exercise your franchise. But in the, minute, in the interim, while we're waiting for Governor Weld, please give us a buzz, 877 301 8970. We particularly would love to talk to people who've already voted. Why'd you vote for whoever you voted for? What was it like at the polls? And if you're on your way or about to be on your way, please let us know. What your decision-making process was uh, was like?
2: Uh, we have Lisa, who said she vote, just voted for a Republican for the first time in 32 years. She voted for Bill Weld because she said she thought it was the only way she could make a direct snub to President Trump, even the teeny-tiniest bit of a snub. So there you go. And Diana says she uh, was it. Diana, no, it's somebody else. It said that they, uh, Emily uh, said she called her town clerk to ask if early voters can change their vote. Because she voted for somebody else, and the answer was no. Um, I guess you can get an, abs- an absentee voter can try to get another ballot and vote again, but she was not able to change her vote.
1: Can somebody check that, please, back in Brighton, by the way? My understanding, and we should have from. checked this, well, it's statewide, it's not a city by or town by town thing. If you early voted, you are screwed if you voted for somebody who's out of the race. My understanding, and please try to correct me before two back in Brighton if I'm wrong, if you absentee ballot voted, you can uh, request your ballot back and uh, cast a vote for someone else. Please let me know if I'm giving out bad information, uh, if uh, you would. By the way, uh, John uh, King was just talking about how the Fed cut the interest rate 50 uh, – pardon me, a half point – and the response of the market is it's down at a uh, little before two o'clock by 650 points. By the way, before shouldn't we get be to your going calls, the other direction what's after,
2: Shouldn't it be going the other direction? After an interest rate One, cut, that
1: was my point. Uh, by the way, while uh, we will get back to your calls in a second, because as promised, joining us online is the former governor of Massachusetts and now Republican candidate for uh, the presidency of the United States. That would be Governor Bill Weld. Governor, good to talk to you as um, always. Great to be with
2: you. Uh, thank you very much for, for calling Governor Weld. I just read an email from someone who said she voted for you, and she vote, hadn't voted for a Republican in 32 years. So there you go. You get some oh, support out that's there. That's one. That's one. That's right. We need a few more. But anyway, uh, Governor Weld, give people your pitch for why they should uh, vote for you today and if they are voting for Republicans instead of uh, President well, Trump. The,
15: the main thing is I want people to be aware there's an alternative, and a rather stark alternative to, to Mr. Trump on the Republican side. So you can look for that. Republican ballot. And the headlines from where I sit are, number one, I'm an economic conservative, which, uh, you know, I balanced the budget. Uh, I was voted the most fiscally uh, conservative governor in the United States when I was in office. Number two, uh, I care about uh, the environment, protecting it, and about climate change. I think that's a national emergency, and I would put a price on carbon to make that ice cap uh, up by the North Pole not melt. Uh, And number three, I'm not in favor of cozying up to Russia to get them to interfere in our elections. I'm not in favor of anybody interfering with our elections. And it's something the founders who wrote the Constitution were very scared of, and I think rightly so. So those are three big differences between me and Donald Trump.
1: uh, Above uh, the differences, uh, Governor Weld, a lot of Democrats think that a second term of uh, Donald Trump is a danger to this country. Not just on policy oh, yeah. differences. Do you uh, share that worldview?
15: Oh no, absolutely. Uh, the, Mr. How? Trump has said uh, if he doesn't, he has said uh, Trump has said if he doesn't win the election, there's going to be a civil war. And people, uh, I've heard of people in Massachusetts, not not in the Western Mountain states, but in Massachusetts, saying, "Civil war, sure, bring it on. We've got our guns." I mean, that's the effect that this president has on people. He's very divisive. He gets people all hot up and uh, angry at other people, whether it's immigrants or, you know, people with a better job, he just stir, uh, sows division and stirs up anger. And I think that's part of his political strategy. And I think that's very dangerous. Uh, I think, for example, you know, the income inequality issue, we've, we've damn well got to start taking that one seriously or we're going to have a torn social fabric in this country. Maybe not a civil war, but a badly torn social fabric is something I worry about it because of the divisiveness of Donald Trump and Steve Bannon and Steve Miller, uh, and, and that would be bad for the country. So I think we need a calming influence. You know me. I'm, I'm nothing if not comfortable in my own skin. <laughs> I don't think Mr. Trump is comfortable in his own skin. I think he's driven by fear and anger and insecurity and who knows what else, but just not, not the right thing for the. I'd like to have a nice, calming president like Reagan or Eisenhower, or I would be. I would be bipartisan cabinet, reach across the aisle. I would change the atmosphere in Washington, D.C. on day one. I did it in mass. I can do it. Yeah, you
2: know, that's a good point, Governor Well. I would always describe you as a calm governor here when you ran the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But I wanted to ask you about something else. You're a former U.S. attorney. You worked in the Department of Justice. There's a lot of people that are very concerned about President Trump politicizing uh, all these uh, big agencies. People are fearing right now that there's some politicization of the coronavirus handling. What's the impact of Trump on the Department of Justice if he's reelected?
15: Oh, a huge impact, negative, on the Department of Justice. I spent seven years in the Justice Department, five as U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, two running the criminal division for the entire department worldwide, and my number one priority was to keep politics out of the, out of law enforcement, to keep it out of the Justice Department. The motto of the Justice Department is to do justice without fear or favor. That's not Donald Trump. He thinks fear and favor is exactly what the Justice Department should be doing, and it should be you know, covering his political skirts to make sure that, if necessary, they uh, fabricate evidence and lie in order to protect him. He ordered four people to lie and fabricate evidence. They said, we can't do that. That would be perjury." And he said, what's your point? What's your point? I don't get it. Your job is to watch out for me. Well, that's not their job. It's not the job of the attorney general. And, you know, in terms of uh, an issue that's personal with me, uh, that and uh, protecting the environment are just way – way up there. And it's just unconscionable. I can't imagine any other president who would dare to say or do one-tenth of the things that Mr. Trump has done in order to trample the rule of law.
1: You know, Governor Well, do you worry about uh, whether, even if Donald Trump is not reelected, about the future of the Republican Party? I don't know if you saw this WBUR poll the other day that knocked my socks off. 82% of Republicans in the state that I think you won your reelection by a mere 70 to 30 or some such thing, 82% yeah, of right. Republicans uh, uh, said they supported the, uh, the president of the United States and uh, not just voting for him but support, give him job approval. Uh, and only 50% of Republicans said they gave positive job approval to a guy created in your image who used to work for you. Uh, Governor Baker, what does that say yeah. about the view of the your fellow Republicans in 2020?
15: Well, I think under Jim Lyons, the state Republican Party is definitely going in the wrong direction. I mean, he's just taking dictation from the Trump folks uh, in Washington. I, I think after the Republicans in the Senate, with the exception of Mitt Romney, uh, voted not to have uh, any evidence at the trial, which is required by the Constitution, so they violated their duty under the Constitution. And they said, not having heard any evidence, we now want to acquit this guy uh, based on no evidence. I think a bunch of them are gonna lose their seats. I saw it happen in the 70s when I worked on the Nixon impeachment, and these Republicans defended President Nixon all summer long, no, he didn't know uh, about the Watergate uh, cover-up conspiracy. Well, the tapes came out, it proved out he was in charge of the conspiracy, and these Republicans all lost their seats and I think if the Republicans lose uh, the, the Senate, as I think they will, and uh, the House stays Democrat, and uh, I, think, I think either uh, Biden or Bloomberg would have a good shot at beating President Trump, then I think you're going to see a lot of finger-pointing, and you probably will see the Republican Party split up in the manner that the Whigs did back in the 1850s, and the know-nothings uh, disappeared into outer space, and the other half, but, decent uh, people who believed in honesty, they went on to elect Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, in 1860. So it could be a happy ending. But, yeah, no, I would not say I'm worried about the Republican Party, because the Republican Party we have in Washington, D.C. right now uh, ain't worth worrying about.
2: Governor. Governor, well, one last thing from me. Uh, uh, you've been quoted before as saying you wanted to debate President Trump. Quote, as one large orange man <laughs> to another large orange man. Uh, but we talked to Corey Lewandowski, one of the uh, uh, you know, close aides Senior of the advisor, president, yeah. uh, Trump. And he said that um, th- there probably would not be any debate between you and the president until November 4th, 2020, which, of course, is the day after the election. So do you know anything we don't know about a possible showdown between the, the two only
15: time, The only time the president has made the political mistake of pronouncing my name this year is when he said, I'm not going to debate Bill Weld or anybody else. And uh, with deepest respect uh, for the office that he holds, uh, I don't think the president can afford to debate uh, anyone who's a courtroom lawyer. And uh, he, he really doesn't have any basis of substantive knowledge, either in domestic policy or foreign policy. So I think it would be a slaughter, and they're, they're quite wise uh, to prefer not to debate.
1: Governor Weld, good luck today. We really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for calling Okay. Thank, thanks so much. Great
15: to be with you, as yes. always.
2: Thank you very, to. very much. We appreciate it. That was the voice of Governor Bill Weld, who, of course, is the former two-term governor of Massachusetts and is now running on the Republican ticket uh, for president of the United States in today's primary.
1: Can I give an update on this thing about uh, if you voted early versus absentee? In Massachusetts, This is according to Deborah O'Malley of the Secretary of State's office. Uh, early vote, if your candidate is gone, you're gone. That's the yeah. way it is. Absentee ballots are cast at the polling place. I'm going to read a quote from Deborah O'Malley. And if a voter is able to go to the polling place before the poll workers put it in the ballot box, they can vote in person, and the absentee ballot would be rejected. So I think the answer is, uh, uh, while the law is the same for every voting community... Uh, the timing of these absentee ballots being placed in the ballot boxes is critical. If you absentee voted and you're around and would like to change uh, your vote, you should call your local voting authority and find out what the status of those votes is. If they haven't been deposited in a ballot box purportedly under state law, you may vote. So we're going to spend our remaining time taking calls from all of you guys. Where do you want to go?
2: Jerry from Chelmsford, thank you for calling.
1: Hi, Jerry. Good afternoon.
12: Hey. so um, I'm registered as an independent I pulled the Democratic ballot and I voted for Bernie Sanders
6: mm-hmm.
12: um, because I feel two things one is that uh, the country deserves to have uh, the clearest possible choice between either they more of the same or radical change and uh, and second because uh, I think Sanders has the uh, least uh, he's the least likely candidate to uh, to win and and if I didn't know anything else about who was president today, and I just was looking at what's the situation in the country, I would say, it's okay, it's good enough. That doesn't mean that I think Donald Trump's a wonderful human being, which he obviously is not. But as compared to a Marxist, um, I think that choice is clear. But let the country decide. The country can decide what it wants. That's what democracy is about.
1: Jerry, well said. Even though uh, I'm not sure that uh, that Sanders supporters would say Marxism is what he's espousing. You know why I'm glad Jerry Colden, Thanks for the call. You yeah, know we've been talking about strategic voting yeah, forever, well, that and was people st- say nobody vote. does that kind of well, thing. He well, did Jerry it. from Shelsford yeah. did it in an attempt to help the guy he's not voting for.
2: Well, I think a lot of people might do that to help the person. They may. Who, uh, they may. Uh, Beth from Framingham. What do you think, Beth? Hey, Beth. Yes,
17: hi. Thanks so
0: much for taking my call. Pleasure. I hope you can hear me. Jubie and uh, hands-free in the car, but I voted, the I, voted the morning. Um, I am trying to get the word out to all of my family and friends and make sure they know that I voted for her. Wait, um,
1: I didn't we didn't hear who you voted for. Her. I assume it's We're Warren. Who did you vote for, Warren? Warren. Yes,
0: Elizabeth Warren. Okay, yeah. go ahead. Yep.
1: And why'd yes. you do it, Beth?
0: Um, Because she's got a plan. Whatever it is, she's got a plan for it. She is smart. She's capable. She has held herself in such... With such decorum. She's the complete opposite of Trump. And I just want folks to know that she is electable. We're psyching ourselves out. Don't think about the person down the street who they're going to vote for if your vote is going to be wasted. Um, Vote with the person you think is the best choice. And for me, that was
1: Warren. Now, I want to say I am acting as Beth's defense lawyer. When you just heard her switch from hands free to hand held, she pulled over to the side of the road. Is that not correct, Beth? I did. Thank you. Thank you very much. You
0: couldn't hear me, but I pulled over. You can send
1: me a check to uh, WGBH. Thank problems
2: you. with the hands-free <laughs> Thanks, system, right? Appreciate I'll be on the hands-free system. What? 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 What are you saying?
1: No. Where are we going next? If you get like, a nice We're car, going to
2: Jane. you actually make the phone well, call. I do. I do. You yeah. actually have a nice I new car. I do. I get a new used car. It's not a new car, but it's a new used new car. Okay. I got a good deal on it, even though it's a ridiculous color. Okay, Jane from Massachusetts. Hi,
1: Jane. Hello, Jane. Hello. I'm very glad to reach you. Do I, I
9: try, started trying yesterday. Glad you got through. What's got up, through? Jane? I'm calling because... Uh, I listened to 60 Minutes on Sunday. Yep. Yep. And Mayor, governor was there. He spoke. He spoke very well.
1: Mayor Bloomberg. Mayor Bloomberg. Yep.
9: And he said that he felt he was the only candidate who could really beat Donald Trump because of his wide experience.
1: Do you agree with that?
9: I and I I was going to vote for Pete, but I couldn't do that. Anyway, so I voted for, for Mayor Bloomberg.
2: Jane, thank, thank you. you very much for the call. Okay, let's try to squeeze in one more. Manny from Boston. Hi, thank you for calling.
1: You have 60 seconds, Manny. Phone. Hi, Manny. Or not. Is Manny there? Apparently not.
2: Oh. So uh, you Manny have... we want to try one more time. Okay. Manny's you there?
1: Yeah, there he is. Hi, Manny in Boston. You have 60 seconds. Take it away. Hi. Hey, guys. Uh, Hi. Thanks
10: for taking my call. Sure. I just want to say quickly that... Um, uh, so I'm voting for I voted for uh, Bernie Sanders this this morning. Yep. And on the point earlier to earlier in the uh, in the show, Marjorie, you made the point that Joe Biden was someone that, uh, you know, people would want to get a beer with. I would yeah. say many voters of my generation are definitely not in that vote. And part of it is because he's his approach with voters recently has been really alienating, I would say, to a lot of millennial voters. Um, he made some points. Uh, he was actually confronted by someone a climate activist from the Sunrise Movement, and was really dismissive of her points around climate change. Uh, and he was also on stage, I guess there was a video making, making the rounds, uh, where he said he didn't empathize with millennial voters. And so I think that's, that's really alienating for him. I think it's going to be a problem for him going
3: forward in, in this election. Well,
10: Mary, thank, thank you very you 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 much it.
2: for the call. We do appreciate it. So we are done. Yeah, big. You
1: know, th- at the end of tonight, we could... I pretty much know the direction things are going. I can't take a 1 in the it's morning or 2 early. o'clock in the it's morning. Be early. California doesn't even close till late at night. They don't? No, it's three hours different. <laughs> like That's on the West Coast. But they close at eight o'clock? the East Coast. But they close at 8 o'clock? I don't know what time they close. Let's hope you they close at 8 o'clock. You have to add three hours to
2: whatever it is. Because if it's it 10 is. o'clock, I, can't, I just can't take it, Jim. Okay, fine. Thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. You. you. can keep up with us 24-7 by way of our podcast on iTunes or at the App Store. Tomorrow, we're going to do our Super Tuesday postmortem with national security expert Juliette Kayyem. Medical ethics is dark capital win in the election as well as the medical ethics issues as well. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Mers, Arjun Singh, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Jubilee, Aidan Conley. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. Our on-site engineer at the Boston Public Library is Ron Milton. Special thanks to the folks at the Newsfeed Cafe. And special thanks to people came down to the Boston Public thank Library. We really coming, yes. appreciate that too. What do you got in TV, Jim? Uh, Adam
1: Riley is going to the Cambridge polling place. Stephanie Lydon is going to Saugus. They will both have a package and then join me and tell me what they saw I'm also going to talk to a colleague from KPBS in San Diego about uh, Max Rivlin Nadler, about his home state, 415 delegates. It's the big prize. Obviously, Sanders is hoping nobody reaches the threshold of 15% other than him, so he gets all the delegates. That could be the big story of the night. Former Congressman Mike Capuano and journalist Joanna Weiss will join me to talk about sort of all these issues you talked about today, from early voting to does the momentum from Joe Biden get felt tonight, and I'm going to do a commentary on the most underreported story with the greatest impact of the last few days, an appellate, federal appellate court decision about whether or not a Trump appointee oh, has to testify in front of Congress, which I would argue, if it holds up, is the end of congressional oversight of any president of the United States. The stakes are huge. We'll do that all tonight at 7 o'clock. Thank you very much. I'm, well, thank I'm, you very uh, much.
2: I'm Marjorie Egan.
1: That's correct. And I I'm am. Jim Browdy.
2: Thank you so much for tuning in. And thanks we, to
1: all the candidates in the center. Yes. Gets to call thank you very we much. Appreciate. Yeah.
2: Thank you very much for our staff for putting together a great show too. Uh, have a great afternoon. Hope you tune in again tomorrow. Bye.
1: Bye.